The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fred and Rose West headed back today to the realm of true crime for another brutal suck. For two decades, Fred and Rose were the patriarch and matriarch of torture, sadism, incest, and death at their horrific British home. Their house at 25 Cromwell Street in Gloucester was just minutes from a busy shopping center. But the layout of the home with the side entrance and little street lighting meant Fred and Rose could sneak in victim after victim almost undetected. Then they would often lead them into the sexual torture chamber they had created in their cellar. Some victims weren't detected because they lived at 25 Cromwell Street. Their own daughter, Heather, 16 at the time of her death, would become one of their victims and not the only child of theirs who would be murdered. After decades of debauchery, cops discovered what would be termed in the press as a house of horrors a few years after Heather disappeared. The monstrous pair had strangled her, stomped her, cut off her head. Her mutilated corpse was dug up at their Gloucester home by police who were stunned to find eight other bodies and additional bodies had been buried elsewhere. Much more well-known in the UK than in North America, just who are these maniacs? Fred West came from a long line of Herefordshire farm laborers. He was born in 1941 in the small village of Much Markle, approximately 120 miles west of London to Walter and Daisy West. Fred began life as a beautiful baby with huge piercing blue eyes and blonde hair, but he wouldn't stay innocent for long. His own childhood may have doomed him. Fred claimed that his father had sex with his sisters and that he lost his own virginity to his mother. He also had sex with his sisters. He grew up in a house of so much incest. Rose's early life, not much better, eerily similar. Rosemary Letts was born in November 1953 in Devon, England, with a less than auspicious heritage. Her father, Bill Letts, was a paranoid schizophrenic. Her mom, Daisy Letts, suffered from crippling depression. As a teenager, Rose showed signs of being sexually precocious, walking around the family naked after her baths and climbing into bed with her younger brother and molesting him. Why was she so sexual? She was molested for years by her father. So much incest in her house as well. So much physical abuse, a sick mirror of Fred's own childhood. In 1969, these two victims of terrible childhoods would meet and pain, death, and chaos would follow. 
They would take what had been done to them and do that and so much worse to others. All this and more in today's British true crime, How Twisted Can One Family Tree Be? edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. It's a good day. You're live listening to this episode. Woohoo! Uh, that first part, probably quite a bit better than the second. I'm Dan Kelman, the Suckmaster, possibly a Cthulhu cultist, definite cult of the curious cultist, and you are listening to Time Suck. Symphony of Insanity stand updates coming up soon, kicking things off in August. Excited to get back on the road a little bit. Uh, Spokane, Cleveland, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Portland, Philadelphia, Kansas City, Denver. San Francisco, Columbus, Tampa, so many stops coming up this fall. Uh, excited to hear reactions to material in real time again. And maybe a little afraid of that. But mostly excited. Uh, some dates already sold out. Some shows added markets, not adding shows and others. So, so get some tickets soon if you want to uh, have me come through town. It'll probably be a longer uh, rotation now because I'm not doing as many dates each year because of all these podcasts that I love doing now. So it will not be a uh, uh, for markets, you know, I won't be back in 12 months. It'll probably be more like, you know, two years. Uh, also, excited for the animated clips Thomas Royal has been doing for Time Sucks, Scared to Death, Is We Dumb? Uh, did you know he animates a 60-second-ish clip from one of our podcasts every week, and we put it on the Bad Magic YouTube channel, on our socials also, like uh, at Dan Cummins Comedy on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, he's great. Uh, the cartoons kill me. He brings a lot of insanity to life, and if you want Thomas to do cartoons for you, you can hit him up. He's fast, reliable, talented animator who, uh, after working for us, took the leap into full-time animation work, and it's really exciting to see how excited he is. It's really cool. Uh, find him, hire him at Salty Monkey Media, saltymonkeymedia.com. Uh, we love Thomas. Uh, super sweet 80s new wave style time suck basketball tee in the store now at badmagicmerch.com. Very cool. Logan continues to amaze us with his design skills, so show those guns as summer meat sacks. Don't hide those bad boys and bad girls under your sleeves. And, and uh, how about that's it for announcements today? We have a lot of suck to get to. Uh, headed back to the UK for today's cr true crime episode. Last time we were there, uh, for true crime anyway, was John Hay, the acid bath murderer. Remember that guy? Really fucked up individual. Killed six to nine people, dissolved most of their remains in acid. Gruesome story. Today's story is somehow way more fucked up. Took a lot more work for me than normal to wrap my head around Fred and Rose West than it did for many of the other dirtbags we've covered so incredibly unusual for two people, a husband and wife, to agree to commit so many heinous crimes together. And they and their crimes very much committed together. Uh, and their crimes ran the gamut from rape, child abuse, incest, sexual torture, prostitution, often brazenly having sex with clients around their children, uh, forcing their own child into prostitution, murder, murder of their children. Most of all that took place in a busy neighborhood in the small city of Gloucester, England. Most took place in the 1970s in an urban home surrounded closely by neighbors near a shopping mall in a home full of boarders coming in and out who didn't realize, apparently, that some of the noises they heard at night during their stay at the West residence were the cries of people being raped, tortured, and murdered in the fuck dungeon of a cellar they had. Stories don't get much more twisted than this one. For longtime suckers, I'd say this week's tale is on par with previous episodes like The uh, Toy Box Killer, Joseph Duncan, Joseph Fritzel, the worst of the killers we've covered, if you're new to the show and not familiar with graphic, really uncensored true crime tales, might want to pick a different topic to start off with. Uh, if you're still here, okay, all right, well, buckle the fuck up. 
A pretty straightforward tale today as far as narrative structure goes. I'm going to talk a little bit about the most unusual aspect of today's episode, uh, a team, a married man and woman raising a family together who also happened to rape and murder and molest. Uh, how rare is this? Uh, how rare is this? Excuse me. You don't come across stories like this very often, thank God. And then the overwhelming majority of the episode will take place in today's timeline, covering the, the lives of Fred and Rose individually, uh, you know, from their births and then linking when they get together and then staying with them until death in Fred's case and incarceration in Rose's case. So let's begin. Uh, the vast majority of the serial killers we've covered, you know, here on TimeSuck work alone. Most serial killers work alone. A couple notable exceptions, uh, Charles Ng and Leonard Lake, Henry Lee Lucas, Otis Toole. Uh, but today's couple is so different than even those duos. Neither one of those murderous pairs were romantically linked, and they certainly were not raising a family together. We've never explored a couple quite like Fred and Rose West. I've never explored anyone even remotely close to these two, actually. They're just such an anomaly. It makes sense to me logically why most serial killers keep their dark secrets uh, entirely to themselves. I think about previous times like topics and serial killers like Dennis Rader, a.k.a. the BTK killer, uh, Robert Hansen, the butcher baker, both were married with children during their killing sprees, and they kept their families totally in the dark. Same with prolific serial killer Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, uh, Israel Keys, we covered not that long ago, had a girlfriend and child at home while he killed. All of these men worked very hard to keep their murderous exploits away from their families. They went to great lengths to live secret lives that their partners were later, you know, shocked by, which makes sense. Why risk your freedom by telling another person who could then turn you in? Also, if you were going to tell someone, why would that person be your romantic partner? You know, that's, that's, that's a big risk. Are they going to approve? Not likely. Uh, it's hard enough for most of us just to find someone to romantically cohabitate with, someone who aligns well with our interests, who will tolerate our faults. Imagine how hard it would be to find someone who you're attracted to, who's also attracted to you, someone you want to have kids with, or want to share a bed with, share a life with, and also someone who wants to rape, torture, and kill. Someone who has no problem with incest, who thinks it's totally acceptable. That's a very tough Tinder or Bumble match. Rare and terrifying okay, Cupid profile. Let me break down why a couple like Fred and Rose West ever existing is so rare with some stats. Uh, some numbers involving different aspects of how they were raised, what they did. Both were raised in incredibly incestuous households which normalized incest for them. And the odds of anyone being raised in a ridiculously incestuous and physically abusive home are thankfully pretty small. Estimates are all over the place, but the studies I've seen regarding incest that involves actual vaginal or anal intercourse, you know, penetration, uh, puts the number at less than 2% of the general population, uh, possibly far less than 2%. And regarding male victims of incest involving sexual intercourse, the number drops, you know, below 1%. And then out of these victims, how many are regularly having sex with their parents for a period of numerous years, like both Fred and Rose? And out of that number, which has to be small, how many of those victims go on to be incestuous victimizers in the same home, regularly having sex with younger siblings? How many people are surrounded by that much fucking incest? It has to be what? Less than 1% of 1% of 1% of the general population? And then... What are the fucking odds that two people raised in households like this would actually be raised in households in the same area and then meet and then be attracted to one another and then date, get married, stay married for over two decades, and then not only repeat the insanely incestuous pattern with their own children, but also take things much further. Fred and Rose West have to be like a one in a billion couple, one in five billion or something. Thank God. It's almost completely unheard of for someone 
uh, as dark and deranged as Fred West to meet someone equally dark, if not more dark, who shares their specific type of derangement. The narrative regarding what kind of relationship these two actually had has changed a lot over the years. Initially, Fred was seen as the monster and Rose was viewed as one of his victims who was coerced into helping satisfy his depraved sexual fantasies. And and I think this has to do uh, with both sexism. You know, a woman couldn't possibly be as sexually monstrous as a man. It's just not in them. And also there are more stats that illustrate why the relationship was originally framed this way. Uh, statistically, women just flat out aren't as rapey and physically abusive and murderous and as murderous as men. Across the world, looking at a compilation of crime stats uh, from almost every nation, almost 78% of murderers are men globally. And when it comes to perpetrators of rape, over 90% of rapists are men in almost every country. In cases of child rape, studies show anywhere from 80% to about 98% of perpetrators being men. In most studies, men account for you know, well over 90% of these crimes. Couldn't find stats specifically for gender differences in incest cases between parents and childs or children, but I imagine men account for the majority of those crimes as well since a lot of studies show that around half of child molesters molest their own family members. So fucking creepy dicks. A lot of creepy dirty weens out there looking for homes in all the wrong holes. Not enough clean weens in the world. A lot of twisted testosterone seeking the wrong release. So because of all these stats, a lot of people, including investigators, had a real hard time viewing Rose as equally uh, as being as equally monstrous as Fred, but she certainly was. Many victims who escaped with their lives would later portray her as being the more sexually aggressive and abusive of the two, the instigator, the leader. Uh, zero hail Lucifina's there. Uh, Lucifina's all for female sexuality, but not like this. Rose West on her own is a is a really rare kind of criminal. Super rare for a woman to do what she did, and the odds of such a rare true crime specimen having a male counterpart as a romantic partner, it's, it's fucking crazy. So what kind of personality profiles usually link up for these super rare, heinous crime sprees? Uh, there's actually no consistent personality pairing, not really. Criminologists do say that there will generally be one dominant and one driving personality type as contrasted with a submissive and compliant personality type. Uh, the dominant person will be the one making the plans, mostly calling the shots, while the submissive partner will look to please the dominant person by complying to their wishes. For Fred and Rose West, though, this, this still doesn't really fit their power dynamic after staying on this episode really for two weeks. I kind of like worked on this one. Uh, would be split pretty evenly. If anything, based on how they both reacted after arrest after their arrests, I would say Rose was the alpha in this relationship, uh, even if her alpha edge was slight, and and her children would also feel this way that Rose was the dominant. Red would do, Fred would do most of the dirty work involving burying the corpses, but it was Rose who physically abused the children the most often, uh, the most viciously. Uh, she seemed to instigate the sexual abuse of most of the victims who got away. And yeah, and again, according to the family, like according to one family member, she lost her temper more often and controlled the family's finances. Again, such an unusual couple. I think part of the reason they got away with what they did for so long was because they just didn't fit any typical criminal profile. Also, they, they just didn't present as people you would think of as serial killers, which, which I know you can apply to almost all serial killers, but they really didn't look like anyone you would think you would have to worry about, at least not to me and to uh, a lot of the people who, who've written about them. They just look so damn average. If they would have been my neighbors, if I just said hello to them a few times, you know, seeing them in passing, I wouldn't have thought twice about them. I don't think any uh, alarm bells would have gone off. Uh, Fred uh, was not traditionally handsome, especially as he aged out of his 20s, but he wasn't unattractive either. Just, yeah, just very, just kind of average, described as slight and small by some investigators, thin, crooked teeth, 
Um, he, he was only conventionally attractive feature was his bright blue eyes. He was slightly overweight by his 30s, walked with a limp, but was also fit and strong. Kind of a classic dad bod, really. Uh, he wore the same navy blue jacket almost every day, typically wore a sweater, blue jeans beneath it. British dad fashion back when he was doing what he did. Uh, rose, medium height, again, average height, thin, pretty attractive, but, you know, not too far to the average range. Uh, when she was young, got thicker, she got older, like a lot of us do. Uh, she rocked a mom bod. She wore mom jeans for most of their evil murder spree or a good portion of it. Her, her glossy black hair was cut short, but fell over her eyes in the front, past her large glasses with colored plastic frames. She typically wore gold hoop earrings while she was at home with dressing gown, slippers, long white nylon socks. She did not look like the crazed, you know, sex crazed meat sack she was. She looked like a nice lady, much more likely to offer you maybe a cookie, some tea, uh, than she was to take you down to the cellar and fuck you and then kill you. She and Fred presented as typical uh, middle-class British people, a British couple. Their house, 25 Cromwell, Cromwell Street, uh, further helped present this air of normalcy as well, at least from the outside. They lived in a modest, semi-detached house that Fred lavished care on, including adding in an ornate house sign fashioned in wrought iron that read the home's address in curly white letters in a black frame. A second pair of iron gates, about six feet tall, were painted gray and fastened with a lock in the middle. They kept a key to the front door under a stone just a few feet away. The front door was stained dark brown in an attempt to make it look like oak, and there was a lucky horseshoe nailed above the door, reminding Fred of the country village where he grew up. He was a sentimental, incestuous rapist and murderer. It was all a little ornate, a little overdone, but nothing you would uh, look twice at, you know, walking down the street. Inside, though, the house of horrors, not typical. You would very likely start to wonder what the fuck was going on in this place. Started out normal and got pretty unusual a little ways in. Uh, the small hallway just inside the front door was painted lime green. There was a tool room where Fred kept his building equipment at the you know, end of the hall. Uh, the washing machine and dryer were there. Head through another door, down a step, and you were in the living area. You know, nothing odd so far. But then go up to the second floor, up a set of stairs behind the door to the right of the entryway. A landing would lead to another lounge with a walk-in bar by the window, tropical mural, and a television. Uh, some guys, you know, want a so-called man cave. Fred wanted a pimp lounge. Usually on the TV, hardcore porn was playing, whether the kids were around or not. And they were often around. Fred and Rose's favorite porn was, you know, very hardcore BDSM stuff. Get masks, someone getting whipped. Uh, shit like we talked about in the Robert Ben Rhodes truck stop, you know, killer suck. Remember Incubus? Resistance is futile, slave. Accept submission to Incubus. The sensory deprivation hood, electrified nipple clamps, mummification tape, and dildo drill. They are only the beginning of your torment. Await the sexual ascension and devastation only Incubus can bring to a slave. Fred West, as you'll learn, uh, every bit as sexually scary as the truck stop killer, as was Rose. Uh, in this pimp lounge of his, Fred often, you know, just sat around watching his porn. He could also be an intercom, uh, listen to another kind of show, uh, the sounds of Rose having sex elsewhere in the house with some paid client. Sometimes Rose made so much noise that she could be heard without the intercom. She typically took her clients upstairs to the room directly above the bar. 25 Cromwell was an odd place inside that had been shoddily expanded over the years by Fred himself. It was kind of a shitty carpenter. It's full of odd corners, you know, uh, support beams in the middle of rooms. It was also a house full of children. One of the most fucked up aspects of today's tale. John's coming in and out to loudly fuck Rose. Fred watching porn on the couch. You know, maybe someone literally tied up in the fuck dungeon cellar and then there's just kids running around hoping they don't get beat or fucked that day. Uh, children ranging in age from toddlers to teenagers filled the house for most of the time Fred and Rose were killing and raping inside its walls. Some of the kids were Fred and Rose's. Some of the kids uh, were children fathered by Rose's clients. Uh, some were Fred's kids from before he knew Rose. Some were foster kids. We'll talk about that later. It's unbelievable. 
Uh, and Fred and Rose exposed all these kids to a world of basically zero sexual boundaries. The atmosphere in the West House was ridiculously sexually charged, basically all the time. Uh, Fred and Rose would talk about sexual acts committed with Rose's prostitution clients in graphic detail in front of the kids. Fred would often also talk about random women he saw on the street, what he wanted to sexually do to them. They would host literal orgies. Uh, they both molested their own kids. You know, they had they were swingers, uh, everything. The kids who survived this ridiculous atmosphere would later refer to Fred and Rose as being sex or as being completely sex mad. Two psychopathic nymphomaniacs. What an insane place to grow up. I can't imagine spending a childhood in that kind of home. Their fuck happy home was a place created by the rare combination of Fred and Rose's very atypical childhoods. Fred and Rose had such fucked up childhoods themselves, as you'll see in the timeline today. This all felt very normal to them. Their collective normal was so, so far from what the overwhelming majority of us find to be normal. Thinking about their normal made me think about just how subjective the concept of normalcy really is. You ever let your mind wander there? How strange is that when you really think about it? What a mind fuck. Allow me to take a strange detour here regarding the nature of normalcy that I promise will circle back to Fred and Rose West. Uh, we, as in all of humanity, collective humanity, we, we, we make up all this shit as we go along. Laws, priorities, morality, what gods we worship, if any. Think about how many different spiritual belief systems exist out there in the world today and how many of their followers are 100% convinced that they're living the quote unquote right life. They're doing things the right way, the only way. Since many of their theologies directly oppose one another, mathematically, if one of their belief systems is actually right, that means that the overwhelming majority of humans on earth don't know what the fuck they are talking about when it comes to the convictions they hold most dearly. That's 100% true. It has to be. Best case scenario, spiritually, billions of people are completely wrong in their belief of how we got here and who is watching over us. We're such an odd species. We make up all these rules to live by, and in the grand scheme of things, these rules don't mean shit. Last week's episode on Lovecraft and his cosmic horror clearly have impacted my thoughts. But really, it's so interesting. Some cultures think premarital sex is not only normal, but important. What you should do. Uh, others, uh, you know, cultures think it's sinful and terrible. Same act. Very different moral views of it. In some cultures, monogamy is one of many equally moral options for romantic relationships. In others, it's the only moral option. Anything else is disgusting and depraved. Some cultures don't care at all about homosexuality. Others despise it so much they label it as being illegal. And then there are different political belief systems, right? There are diehard conservatives, bleeding heart liberals, communists, capitalists. So many of these people think that their system is far and away obviously the best. Anything else is nonsense. And just like with religion, best case scenario, mathematically, most of them have to be flat out fucking wrong if one of the belief systems happens to be right. Again, best case when it comes to humanity's driving belief systems, most people are wrong. So many different views on this is what's right. This is how you should live. This is how you have to live. There are people who loathe profanity, people who don't care at all about it, people who find pornography immoral and exploitive, people who think it's a great tool to use to enhance one's sex life and celebrate sexuality. The only real definite in life is death. We're all going to shed our mortal coils. What happens after death? We can't even agree on that. What happens between birth and death? Well, we have to eat, breathe, drink water if we want to keep living. But the rest? Well, what we choose to do with our time, deciding whether it's wrong or right, pretty damn subjective, isn't it? We don't have to wear clothes. We don't have to have money or laws or taxes. And I can go so much further, but you get the point. Much of what defines our lives, what we value, what is good, what is bad, what we believe, what we don't believe, subjective. Through years of agreements, civilizations are born, cultures arise for future meat sacks to be born into, and then those meat sacks can choose to buy into that culture's values, that civilization's rules, or 
like Fred and Rose West, see, I circled back, they can really choose not to. Holy shit, did Fred and Rose West choose not to buy into the culture around them. They lived very much in their own world. They made up their own rules. When it came to a lot of what they did, uh, I don't think they really thought of it as evil. They were just living by a very different code than the rest of us. They built a world for themselves, a world that was a continuation of the unusual childhood worlds they had, a world most of us, you know, find to be super fucked up. In the world they created for their family, literally fucking just about anyone, everyone was totally normal. Incest, rape, physical abuse, part of daily life. Murder, also acceptable in their reality. Some days you watch the telly, other days you kill a sex slave. That's just life in the West home. Some days you have an orgy the kids can hear. Other days you literally fuck the kids. Another day in the West home. And the incest and murder, no more moral or immoral than watching the telly. At least not to Fred and Rose. Thank God the overwhelming majority of us do not subscribe to their reality. Oh my God, a true hell on earth if we did. All right, let's really dig into the details now of Fred and Rose's sexually charged hell uh, by beginning with the days they were born, familiar, familiarizing ourselves with the key details of their childhoods and learn a little bit about, about their parents who influenced them and, you know, uh, helped them become the monsters they were. And we'll cover the crimes that define their adulthoods in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. On September 29th, 1941, Fred West is born in the very old and very small English village of Muchmarkle in the county of Herefordshire. About 650 people live there now. Uh, the town has been there and been a small town for over a thousand years. Old town. It's about 120 miles west of London. The most interesting thing that's ever happened in Muchmarkle was a massive landslide during the reign of Elizabeth I that occurred back in 1575. About three miles north, northwest of the village, uh, on the eastern face of Markle Ridge, a massive landslip estimated at 2 million cubic feet took place over three days, starting on February 17th, 1575, named the Wonder. It was so large that full-grown trees were carried down the slope, moving from one farm to another. The landslide destroyed portions of two roads and a chapel, left a wall of earth and stone 15 feet high, and people would travel from all over central England to marvel at the Wonder. In the days before TV, podcasts, and video games gave them... Uh, you know, more stimulating shit to do with their free time. Uh, Fred's parents had met in Muchmarkle, a town described as being pretty culturally removed from the rest of England. Read backwards as fuck. A little country village full of mostly farmers felt like a throwback to an older, simpler, and frankly, much less educated time. Uh, Fred West's father was a man named Walter West, born in 1914. Uh, he'd been raised near the town of Ross-on-Wee, a town of about 10,000, uh, a whole eight miles from Muchmarkle. Back then, it might be Ross on why. Uh, that, that distance felt a lot more substantial than it does now. Walter's father had been an army sergeant who was decorated for his service in World War I. Walter would never receive any equivalent honors, or really honors uh, any, any honors at all. Uh, he wasn't what you'd call a real accomplished man, and he certainly was not an honorable man. He never lead, learned to read or write, not uncommon for the area. He left school at the age of 11 to work on the family farm as his grandfather's wagon boy. Also not an uncommon thing to do in that area at that time. Walter married for the first time in 1937 when he was 23 to a woman named Gertrude Maddox, herself 45 years old. They moved away after their marriage and set up in a town called Preston, 160 miles away, and Walter went to work at a place called the Thomas Farm. Gertrude was not able to have children, so the couple fostered a one-year-old boy named Bruce from an orphanage. But then just two years into their marriage, Gertrude got stung by a bee and it didn't feel good, so Walter took their kid back to the orphanage and left town. 
uh, uh, sorry, glossed over a, uh, an important detail there. Uh, Gertrude got stung by a bee and died. Probably should have included that last part. And then Walter not being able to uh, not being able to work and, and raise a small child, he gave their son Bruce back to the orphanage, and Bruce lucked the fuck out in this deal because Walter is a real piece of work. Uh, two and a half months later, Walter returns home, attends the 1939 Much Markle Fair, which I'm sure was super exciting. And it's something called a needlework stall, undoubtedly the highlight of this very awesome fair. He met the creepy woman who had become Fred West's mother, 16-year-old Daisy Hill. Daisy lived with her parents in a cottage on a sloping track known as Cow Lane. <laughs> very uh, creative uh, choice there. Because their house was built on a slope and their last name was Hill, they were known as Hillbillies. They were also known as Hillbillies because they were dirty, backwoods, and fucking creepy, probably incestuous. Daisy described in sources as not being conventionally attractive. I love it. That's like the most PC way of just saying somebody was, you know, ugly. Uh, not conventionally attractive. Uh, was uh, She was thrilled that Walter West, not a real looker himself, was interested in her. Uh, before long on January 27th, 1940, the two were married at St. Bartholomew's Church. A very cool building built in the 13th century. You can still visit. Uh, these two will later be buried in the cemetery next to the church. You can see their tombstones if you're a... Uh, Serious true crime junkie out in that part of the UK. Uh, Daisy wore a white dress with a veil, carried tulips, and a lucky horseshoe. That's, you know, got a real country wedding when you're carrying a horseshoe down the aisle. Uh, the newly married couple set up their home just off the A449 main road. Daisy got pregnant almost immediately, but the daughter was born prematurely and died in the cradle a few days later. Walter and Daisy then moved into a red brick cottage just outside of town in a neighborhood called Saysell's Corner. Their home was called the Bickerton Cottage and it didn't have electricity, gas, or running water, which was typical for the area. Uh, and that's how you know your village is small and old, when a lot of the houses have nicknames, right? Instead of giving someone an, an address to find, you know, you say stuff like, uh, they're staying at the old Bickerton Cottage, it's just down the road there, past the Nichols Place, uh, right before Gottsinger's Barn. People still do stuff like that uh, all the time where I grew up. I do stuff like that, referring to places where I grew up. Uh, the West kept chicken and pigs in an outhouse behind the cottage where they emptied the bucket that served as a toilet. There in this wonderful sounding palace of a home, Daisy got pregnant again. And she gave birth to a healthy baby boy on September 29th, 1941. Uh, after their first child dying so soon after birth, they waited a few weeks to name this one. Wanted to make sure he's gonna stick around before they spent a lot of, you know, brain power on a name, I guess. They named their boy Frederick Walter Stephen West, known in the family as Freddie. And Daisy was obsessed with Freddie right from the start. She took her little baby boy to bed with her every night, cuddling him to the exclusion of her husband. She loved his, you know, strawberry blonde, curly hair, his astonishingly blue eyes. And uh, she was she was too infatuated with Freddie. It was, it, was, it was creepy. Her relationship with Freddie will turn out to be anything but natural. Uh, Daisy will give birth to six more children over the next 10 years. And with all these mouths to feed, the West soon descend into considerable poverty, even by much Markle standards. During World War II, Walter will only earn about six pounds a week, about 300 pounds a week today. That equates to about 25% less than the UK minimum wage right now. Not nearly enough to provide for a large family. The West literally had to live off the land eating apples that fell from their trees and eggs, you know, that their chickens produced. Walter would bring pails of milk back from the farm every day and tend to a vegetable garden behind the house, daisy baked bread, and did the family's laundry in an old iron tub. In July 1946, finances get a little bit better and the West move again and arrive at the home where Fred would grow up and learn how to not properly raise a family. They now live in a large semi-detached building with two chimney stacks called Moore Court Cottage, another named home. I love it. Walter found work tending to the milking herd at Moore Court Farm. Moore Court Cottage had three bedrooms, one for the parents, one for the now three boys they had, and one for their three girls. 
Two of the children ended up dying in infancy out of the eight Daisy gave birth to, having her final child in 1951. Uh, Tin bath in the parlor was where they all washed up. Toilet facilities were once again limited to a single bucket, which had to be emptied every morning. This all sounds delightful. Uh, Once again, I'm so happy to be living during the present day. Hot showers and cool AC. Fuck the past. Never had to ship. I never have to shit in a bucket. Uh, The West home quickly became filthy. Rats were constantly appearing. Daisy was always blasting them with Walter's shotgun. Fred started going to the local primary school shortly after moving to Moorcourt Cottage. The West kids would walk two miles there and back every day. Young Fred got in a lot of trouble at school. School didn't really suit him. He described him basically every source as being, well, a little dim, a little uh, fucking stupid. As a kid, he was also described as dirty and always in trouble. He was a real champion of a boy. He was a little hellraiser who regularly got slapped by teachers with a slipper and by the age of eight started getting caned by teachers as well. <laughs> he did not get in trouble at home for his acting out in school. Mama West actually went to school and berated his teachers for whooping baby boy numerous times. Fred's mom was still obsessed with him. At some point in his childhood, her obsession became sexual. By the early 1950s, no exact date was given by Fred for when it began. A lot of incest was going down in the West household. Fred's mother began molesting him somewhere around the time he began going through puberty. and Possibly, I'll say extremely likely, prob- probably his brothers as well. Fred will later state he lost his virginity to his mother, and he didn't seem to think that was a bad thing. If he felt any shame around this or any anger towards his mother, he never spoke about it or showed it. It felt normal to him. And in his childhood home, incest had been normalized. Fred's father, Walter, was molesting his three sisters. The sexual abuse was not done secretly. It was done openly. It was presented as, this is just what families do. Uh, Fred would speak of his father's sexual appetites, basically saying that his creepy, horny self was a was a case of the apple not falling far from the fucked up tree. Claimed that his father raped all of his sisters, didn't hide it. Didn't hide it. Claimed that, uh, you know, what he did was uh, natural, thought he had a right to do it as their father. A little twist on the old, I brought you into this world and I'll take you out of it. Walter's mindset was more, I brought you into this world and I'll fuck you whenever I want. How extra weird to have your dad not only molest you, but then according to uh, one doc I watch, just casually talk about it around the rest of the family like it's totally normal. Some of us have parents who talk to us about making sure we do our homework, making sure we clean our plate at the dinner table, maybe ask us about our day. Others talk about fucking us. How odd to not try and hide it. Fred would even later claim that his dad at some point in his childhood, uh, you know, around the time he went through puberty again, taught him about bestiality. What another odd fatherly lesson. Son, pay attention. This is how a real man fucks a cow. Don't grab the tail like a sissy. I ain't raising no tail grabber. Grab it like you mean it. Grab the front of the hind legs like so and thrust like this, see? Watch me. My father taught me how to fuck a cow. Now I'm teaching you. It's the West way. I don't know if they fucked cows. I just know the two of them would later work together on a farm with cows. There's a lot of cows around. And Looking at everything else in this story, I'm gonna assume that they were probably cow fuckers. Clearly uh, not a big social worker presence in this part of England at this time. Fred's doing whatever the hell he wants. No one's reporting or investigating anything. The West kids are uh, really having their minds warped. They're being molested, taught to think that's uh, that's how families behave. It would later come out, not surprising, in this kind of home that Fred and at least one of his brothers, John, 13 months his junior, were having sex with their sisters. In at least one account, it was presented that Fred was raping his little sisters. So this is how he grows up. This is the way the rules of the world are presented to him, that families fuck each other. At the age of 15, he leaves school without taking any exams. He could barely count, couldn't read or write beyond the level of a seven-year-old. He hated school. He's probably mad now that his teachers frowned on him, trying to fuck everybody. School sucks. Teachers don't even fuck you, ever. They won't even let me fuck the other kids. <laughs> What's their problem, stupid prudes? I guess they just weren't raised right, you know? Uh, while he hadn't done well academically, he had shown some mechanical aptitude. He was handy. 
And uh, boy, boy, was he ever. Uh, and this would help him stay steadily employed as an adult. He liked woodworking classes. He made a three-legged uh, milking stool and a bench, which he gave to his mom, Daisy. Of course he did. 1956, the age of 15, uh, Fred gets a job working with Daddy Famdick. I mean, Walter, at a few local farms. People later remembered him as a messy boy, mud-covered Wellington boots with yellow teeth and tufts of facial hair, who only gave mumbling answers and often looked away. The West family, standing out even in much markle for being dirty fucking hillbillies. Backing up a little now to 1953, when Fred was 12, this was the year that Rose West would be born. Born Rose Lett, November 29th, 1953, to an equally dysfunctional family. Rose's father, William Andrew Letts, known as Bill, had been born in 1921 and brought up in Northam, a small coastal town on the North Devon coast in southwest England, 150 miles southwest of the cultural oasis of Muchmarkle. Bill's mother was a nurse and his father did odd jobs. Rose's dad was sickly as a child, then as a young adult, went on to work in an electrical shop in nearby Biddeford. After finishing secondary school, he then worked as a radio engineer for the Bristol Airport Company. Bill's best friend was Lionel Green, whose family owned a business at London's East End, or in London's East End, and when World War II began, the Greens moved into a large house in Biddeford to escape the Blitz, where Lionel lived with his parents and three sisters and a girl the Greens employed to help look after the kids. And that girl's name was Daisy Gwendolyn Fuller. She would become Rose's mother. Daisy was from Chadwell Heath, a bit of a rundown area of East London and the greater London area today. Back then, its own proper little blue-collar town in Essex. Her father was a professional soldier. Daisy followed in his footsteps of public service. Uh, during the 1930s, she worked at a public house in London's Brick Lane. Then she got work with the Greens, moved with them to Devon. She wasn't immediately impressed with Bill. She seemed stiff and a bit of a dud. He hated profanity, didn't smoke or drink. He preferred grapefruit juice to beer. He seemed too straight-laced for her liking. She had no idea he was trying harder than the average bear to regulate his behavior in public because he was hiding some real darkness inside and some serious mental illness. Daisy liked to build and manhandle her or chase after other girls and they started to date. One of the worst decisions, if not the worst, she would ever make. The two were soon married on April 18th, 1942 at St. Mary's Church in Essex. Afterwards, Daisy moved in with Bill's parents in their tiny house on Castle Street, which his parents kept obsessively clean. And it was only after they'd gotten married that Rose learned that Bill was a diagnosed schizophrenic who had been suffering severe psychotic episodes since he was a kid and who was not taking his medication. All these episodes continued throughout their marriage whenever he was off his meds, you know, which was uh, usually he was off his meds. He'd become aggressive out of nowhere and often had irrational suspicions that people around him were plotting against him. His mental illness combined with him being a terrible human being at his core, a physically and sexually abusive monster would create a nightmare of a home life for Daisy and their children. Bill wanted a large family. Awesome. Always great when unstable monsters want lots of kids. And they got busy in that department right away. The two were still living with Bill's parents when their first child, Patricia, was born in 1943. Second daughter, Joyce, born 18 months later. A few months after that, Bill joins the Navy as a radio operator sent to the Philippines. When the war ends in 1945, Bill volunteers to stay on, remaining in the Navy for the next three years. Their third daughter, Glennis, born in 1950. And then the Letts moved to a house in Northam at 57 Morwenna Park Road. Their house was a newly built three-bedroom property on a small estate. When Bill came back for visits, it was clear that his Navy training had influenced him. He demanded that their house be kept spotless. And he and Davey often got into shouting matches about this. He also, and here comes schizophrenia, uh, did not want Daisy to be friends with anybody, including their, including their neighbors, who found it odd that Daisy only spoke when spoken to. Overly controlling. That's often how the abuse starts, Meat Sacks. If someone really loves you and isn't an abusive shit, they don't worry about who you're talking to. I don't care who my wife, Lindsay, talks to. 
Actually, the more friends she has to talk to, uh, the less she feels the need to talk my ear off. <laughs> JK, kind of, but not really. I love her. Also love that I'm by far not her only social outlet. Daisy gets pregnant with her fourth child. Bill leaves the Navy. He'd regret doing so for the rest of his life and resent his family for it. I think he would have resented his family no matter what because he's a real piece of shit. That's just the reason he gave for some of his abuse. There wasn't much work in Devon at the time. Jobs were paid, uh, not paying much. Uh, so Bill works for a while repairing television sets, but his mental illness makes it so that he's, he's not employed uh, for very long in that regard. He uh, bounces around to various odd jobs. He'd be unemployed for long stretches. I have no idea how he kept his shit together for a while in the Navy. Uh, the Lutz were a poor family, but despite being poor, Daisy was determined never to let it show. She dressed her children well, brought them up with good manners, also gave them chores, ironing, babysitting, doing the shopping. And of course, when Bill came home, it was everyone's job to make sure that the house was super, super clean so that father didn't lose his shit. Let's work really hard to make sure the home was clean because if they didn't, Daisy and the kids got beat. By the mid-50s, Daisy was often seen around the village with black eyes. At least on one occasion, Bill was witnessed pulling his screaming wife down the front steps of their house and hitting her. Fucking ridiculous. Also, by the early 50s, the children weren't allowed to play outside in the yard anymore. Why is that? Because they were also being beaten savagely. Bill would often hit his kids, boys and girls, in the face. He'd beat them with copper rods from the boiler. He'd throw nearly boiling hot water on them. He was a severely mentally ill psychopath. In 1952, Daisy gives birth to their fourth child, Andrew, and the birth leaves her with severe postpartum depression. I'm sure years of spousal abuse didn't help in the depression area either. Uh, 1953, Daisy has a full-on nervous breakdown. She becomes an outpatient at the psychiatric unit of the hospital in Biddeford. A doctor there suggests that she might benefit from electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, so Daisy tries it. She's strapped down. Doctors attach electrodes to her scalp, give her a piece of rubber to bite down on before switching on the juice, and then a powerful electric current blitzes through her brain. Uh, electroshock, electroshock therapy, controversial when Daisy got it, as it is now, probably more so back then, was not nearly as refined as it is now. Uh, now it works very well for some people. I've met some people, some Time Suck fans actually, who uh, based on me talking about it disparagingly in other episodes, told me that they had undergone ECT and it helped them tremendously. Not sure it helped Daisy very much though. In the early 50s, ECT was still often administered in what was called an unmodified form without muscle relaxants. And the seizures it created would often lead to massive convulsions that would crack vertebrae and break bones. Oh my heck, that does not sound pleasant. Also, there was a risk of memory loss, or still is, feelings of extreme confusion. Basically, you could scramble your fucking noodle pretty good. And it seems like it scrambled Daisy's noodle quite a bit. When Daisy Letts received it, very little was known about any of the adverse effects. She received six sessions of ECT, during which she became pregnant for her fifth time. In the fall of 1953, on November 29th, not long after her last session, she would have the couple's fifth child, Rosemary Pauline Letts. And a lot of people have speculated that Rose's noodle got scrambled by the ECT sessions while she was in the womb. Rose did not get a good start in life. Uh, she was born into the home of two seriously mentally ill people. Her father, a violent and perverted schizophrenic, her mother suffering from crippling depression, who was now also dealing with the side effects of ECT, brain fog, memory loss, confusion. Uh, soon, after they brought their, or soon after they brought her home, it was clear that Rose was different than other children. She rocked violently in her pram, a kind of carriage stroller combo deal. So violently it would move across the room if the brake wasn't on. As she got older, Rose, uh, you know, rocked her head for hours on end. And then as she got older, still her family came to think of her as a, a bit slow is how it's written. Their term for states of almost semi-consciousness that Rose would work herself into by all this rocking. Her siblings ended up nicknaming her Dozy Rosie because of her slowness. Uh, she is often as, uh, you know, she was often left on her own. Spent time with, you know, six pet hamsters. 
Poor Dozy Rosie did poorly in school. She couldn't even spell the simplest of words. At home, uh, Rosie's siblings knew that if they didn't do her chores for her, she wasn't good at those either. Uh, they were all in for a beating. Her father, Bill, seemed to favor her. She was the only child of his who would escape physical punishment. He would abuse her in other ways. More on that when it shows up in the timeline. Uh, Daisy would have two more children despite her struggles, a son, Graham, born in 1957, and another son, Gordon, born in 1960. Let's now jump back over to Fred West's childhood. John West uh, leaves school in 1957 to join his older brother, Fred, and work with their father on the farm. That year, with John at 14 turning 15 and Fred now 15 turning 16, they start to go to the nearby town of Ledbury on the weekends. It was the closest big city, a whopping 10,000 people. Reminds me of going to McCall, Idaho on a few different weekends when I was a kid, driving an hour to cruise around in the big city of 3,500 people. Uh, like McCall, Ledbury had a cinema. Unlike McCall, it also had a chip shop, a milk bar, and a youth club. A milk bar. Never heard of a milk bar before. Doing a little poking around. Sounds like they were very popular in the uh, UK and Australia around this time. A few in the States. Kind of like a malt shop. Uh, like a pub, but milkshakes instead of beer. A teen hangout spot. Some milk bars also had sandwiches, convenience store stuff too. You know, go get a milkshake, pack of smokes, loaf of bread, all the important stuff. Uh, in Ledbury, these two pieces of shit, or at the very least, these two future pieces of shit, Fred and John spent evenings talking to other teens from surrounding communities, smoking at the market house, lounging in the cheap, uh, cheap seats at the movie theater where Fred liked to catch John Wayne movies. Uh, coming across that info for the first time, I had a weird thought about how evil people do the same shit as the rest of us. I mean, I mean, of course they do. It just suddenly struck me as odd. Like odd how you could be watching your favorite movie and that favorite movie could also be some horrific serial killer's favorite movie. You could be enjoying it after eating dinner, following a normal day at the office. Uh, they could be enjoying it while tying someone up in the cellar and uh, why that person's pleading for their life. Or maybe after that, probably be hard to multitask in that situation. Uh, some part of me is always surprised to remember that most of the time, even the worst serial killers are not doing evil things. They're doing the same amoral, mundane, average shit the rest of us do. Right? They might kill 20 people, but also, you know, uh, one of the days they kill someone, you know, be super irritated that their favorite TV show just got canceled or very frustrated with a sliver. They got fixed in their deck or something. I don't know. Maybe it's just a weird thought to me. Moving on. Uh, Fred started caring about his appearance around this time. He started to shave, comb his hair, put on clean clothes. And then to the surprise of some who met him later, he actually con uh, was considered uh, one of the best looking boys at that youth club. He was a looker. The girls were interested but not really. They thought they were at first. He was interested in them. Uh, for the most part, they did not care for his personality. Most girls found him crude and a bit skeevy because he was crude and skeevy. He creeped a lot of them out because he was very creepy. Also, not real bright. He was poor and rough around the edges. And a lot of kids, despite his looks, thought of him as a country bumpkin. But then in late 1958, Fred got cool. He had a lot more desirable. Around his 17th birthday, he got a 125cc James motorcycle with a moth painted tank. Fuck yeah, bro. Nice. Got a couple tattoos on his shoulders. Got a naked drawing of his mom on one shoulder and the words, been there. And then on his other shoulder, he got a naked drawing of his favorite sister and the words, done that. Too much? Maybe. Of course, that was nonsense, but he did get a motorcycle. He wouldn't ride it long though. On November 28th, 1958, Fred's riding his motorcycle just a few hundred feet away from home when he runs into a young local girl named Pat Manns who'd been on a bicycle traveling in the opposite direction. Fred is rushed to the Hereford Hospital. The girl lives... No word on how bad she was injured. Some locals would later say Fred ran into her on purpose. Uh, considering who he became, I'm going I'm I'm to buy that. I'm going to say that probably happened. Uh, the accident left Fred critically injured with a massive head wound. And he wouldn't come out of a coma for a full week. He had to have his skull operated on. A steel plate had to be fitted into his head to keep his shattered skull together. Uh, his, his nose was broken. 
Injuries to his arm would cause him pain for the rest of his life. He would now also permanently walk with a bit of a limp. And the crash had disfigured his face a bit, putting an end to his days of being the handsomest boy in town. His eldest son would claim years later that this accident, according to family lore, really did change him. And maybe it did. I won't go deep into it here because I've discussed studies about the link between head trauma and murder in numerous serial killers uh, episodes before, but many think having the right kind of head injury, specifically to the frontal lobe, definitely tilts certain individuals towards uh, murder or more murder. Makes sense. The frontal lobe, in particular, the orbital and ventromedial prefrontal cortices have a primary role in moral behavior and regulating it, emotionally driving moral decisions, being involved in abnormal moral behavior. The frontal lobe also regulates impulse control and sexual behavior. Injured the wrong part of it, and now you have a very different view of, uh, of morality and a harder time regulating impulses, including sexual impulses. And since Fred's impulses were not good to begin with, thanks to a very shitty childhood, this could have been what tipped him much further towards the monster he soon became. Uh, weirdly, my dad got into a motorcycle accident, a bad one. He was around 17. I don't want to ask him about it. You know, for this episode, I was going to, and I was like, no, nah, he'll, he'll probably know that I'm going to use details about it for another joke about him maybe being a serial killer. He's on to me now. Uh, but it is almost like my dad's the American Fred West, you know, because he really did get into an accident that gave him a severe head injury. He wasn't wearing a helmet, left him in a coma for over a week. Not kidding. He looked so bad, apparently, that when the first people showed up to the scene, some farmers who lived nearby, they just covered him up with a sheet. Like they thought he was dead. It scrambled his brain so bad when he finally woke up, he thought he was one of his brothers for a while. And that's probably when he started killing. I mean, if he if he does that, if he did that, but you know, come on. Where are the bodies, dad? Where are the bodies? That joke still hasn't gotten old to me. Uh, now time for a quick check on Rose. Things gotten difficult in the Letts family in 1960. There was now a rumor going around that Bill Letts, Rose's father, had an unhealthy interest in children which became even more amplified when Bill decided to start a rock and roll youth club for local teenagers behind the uh, Kingsley Arms Public House, where local teens gathered to listen to early Bill Haley and Elvis Presley music. And the rumor started because Bill did have an unhealthy interest in children, at least in his own. If he hadn't started molesting Rose yet, she's now seven, he would be soon. Several documentaries I watched had criminal experts talking about Rose's dad grooming her in prepubescence. He'll begin to rape her frequently before uh, she becomes a teenager, saying horrific shit like, I made you and I'll do what I want with you. Sounds a lot like Walter West. Just like with Fred in her early childhood, rape and incest are normalized by her primary caregiver. By the time she hit puberty, Rose will be walking around the house fully nude, flirtatious. She'll uh, be highly sexualized, be having incestuous relationships with her two brothers in addition to her father. So fucked up, obviously. Uh, also mirroring Fred's uh, home environment. Bill's youth club soon shuts down. Bill decides to pack up the family, move to Plymouth, where people don't know he's a pedo yet. He'd also found a poorly paying job at the nearby Devonport dockyards. Things were not good at home. Daisy was on the verge of a second nervous breakdown now, cleaning the house up to four times every day. Rose, too, behaving oddly. She uh, cuts up her bed sheets to make clothing for her dolls. She lies incessantly. It is a shit show. Of course it is. Bill is literally crazy. He's an unmedicated, paranoid schizophrenic. He's uh, violently abusive. He's beaten Daisy, beaten and molesting the children. Back to Fred West now, in the summer of 1960, in Ledbury. After recovering from his motorcycle crash injuries, Fred meets his future first wife, a pretty 16-year-old who'd moved down from Scotland named Catherine Bernadette Costello, known as Rena. Rena was a bit of a delinquent. Her first appearance in court had been for theft back in May of 1955, when she was only 11. There had been multiple court appearances between 1955 and 1960. The two meet, they date off and on over the next year or so, can't find any real details about their initial romantic encounters other than it was hot and heavy. 
And then they took a break. Not sure why. Probably because Fred's a psychopath. In the fall of 1960, Fred is hanging out in Ledbury at a house party when he makes a pass at a different young woman standing on the fire escape. Some sources say pass. Uh, some say he grabs her and tries to sexually assault her. I'm going to believe that claim. And then some dude stands up for her, hail Nimrod, and punches Fred in the fucking face so hard he loses his balance, topples over the railing, and falls headfirst onto the concrete below, about 10 feet down. Fred got knocked the fuck out. Once again, he ends up in the hospital with a massive head wound. Friends and family notice an immediate personality change when he recovers. He's become short-tempered and irritable. His family wonders if he's now suffered more brain damage. Dude wasn't smart to begin with. Now he's had two serious head wounds in a short period of time. This, of course, will not be good for anyone in this story. After he recovers in the early spring of 1961, hanging out with his friend Brian Hill in Ledbury, Fred commits his first crime, or at least the first he gets caught for. He steals a couple of cigarette cases and a gold watch strap. Shopkeepers give the boys descriptions to the police. They're arrested shortly thereafter. Uh, Fred makes his first ever court appearance at Ledbury Magistrate's Court for shoplifting in April. He and his friend Brian Hill both plead guilty or fined four pounds plus costs. His first criminal charge, the second would come shortly after. And it'll be a lot more serious and indicative of the monster he's becoming. In June of 1961, Fred is arrested on a charge that shocks his family. Yeah, right. They couldn't have been surprised. He was accused of having sex with a 13-year-old girl. He's 19, about to turn 20. A doctor examines the girl, discovers she's pregnant. Fred is uh, belligerent with the police after being charged. During interrogations, it comes out that he'd been molesting girls regularly since his early teens and didn't consider his actions particularly shocking or criminal. He's surprised it's illegal. He actually reportedly said, well, doesn't everyone do it? Like he actually thought this is just how you're supposed to live your life. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, and thanks to not being real bright to begin with, those head injuries, it might've been you know, harder for him than, than the average bear to actually truly understand that most families didn't behave like this. Uh, Fred is charged with unlawful carnal knowledge of a child. He's brief, briefly kept in a cell while his family arranges bail. His family was allegedly furious. I'm guessing they were either mad that he got caught or maybe that he was, you know, fucking some kid not related to him. Who knows why they seem mad? Maybe to keep up public appearances of not being a family of hillbilly pedophiles. His mom, Daisy, told him that he was no longer welcome at home. She's probably mad. He cheated on her. And uh, with great bitterness, Fred goes to live with his mom's sister, Violet, and her husband, Ernie, at Daisy Cottage in Muchmarkle, another named place. Daisy Cottage. Probably hated living with his aunt and uncle. Sucks here. No one fucks anybody. At least not me. My aunt and uncle, can you, can you believe this? They got mad at me when I got naked one night and tried crawling into bed with them. What a crazy world we live in. Uh, the 13-year-old girl has an abortion. Fred's case is set for trial in November. He quits his job at the farm, starts up with building, beginning a lifetime's work of odd jobs. He wasn't a good builder, but he wasn't the worst. Uh, he doesn't quit his bad habits. Uh, he's soon arrested again for stealing pieces of hardware from a building site. Uh, one woman claims that it was during this time that Fred raped her twice. She was 14. One can only imagine how many girls he raped who just never reported the crime. He also reportedly got a younger sister pregnant around this time. When she was 13, she would have an abortion and got uh, one of his sister's 13-year-old friends pregnant. Fred appears in court in Herefordshire on November 9th, 1961 for the rape of a 13-year-old girl. Uh, the girl that, who uh, had the abortion we mentioned earlier. Fred's prepared defense. It's, it's, how sad is that? That I have to like uh, point out which 13-year-old girl he's on trial for raping because there's so many. Fred's prepared defense was that his two accidents had given him brain damage. True. Uh, the strategy would not be necessary though. The 13-year-old girl declined to be a witness at the last minute and the case sadly fell apart and Fred walked free. He did at least suffer some consequences. Uh, he was no longer welcome at home. Uh, brought, you know, public shame to the family. <laughs> I find that so ridiculous. Like they're, they're mad at him. 
Uh, and the now 20-year-old Fred, has to, uh, who has no education, is a convicted thief, uh, widely believed to be a mentally unstable child molester, has to try and make it on his own. He becomes an outcast. Around this time, things not going much better for Rose. After two years of living in Plymouth, Father Bill packs up and moves the family again, first to Stratford-upon-Avon. Pretty sure somebody famous is from there. I can't remember who. Uh, and then the family moved to uh, Cheltenham, where Bill worked for a defense contractor named Smith Industries. There he makes more money than he'd made previously, working as an electronics engineer on flight simulators. I don't know how the... Well, I guess he had the Navy experience. Uh, and I do know what famous person is uh, from Stratford-upon-Avon. It's William Shakespeare. I know. I think he wrote some plays or something. You can stop yelling about how dumb I am now. Uh, actually, uh, he wrote some of the most famous plays of all time, right? I know. I, yeah, you know, I've read them. Uh, Romeo and Julie, McBill, King Deer, The Tempter, Piglet, Midsummer Night's Wet Dream, Ojello, The Murder of Venice Beach, Much to Do About Something or Other. JK, gosh dang. Uh, the money was good with Bill's new job, but Bill also found it very stressful and he doesn't, he doesn't, he didn't handle stress well. Uh, the violence at home now worse than ever. One wrong word, you know, from his family would spring Bill into abusive, psychotic action. His children would later remember him doing shit like chasing him around with knives and uh, once with an axe. What fun childhood memories. Hey, hey, you remember that time that dad chased us around with that butcher's knife? Oh yeah, forgot about that. I was just happy he didn't grab the axe. You know, <laughs> the axe, I mean, that really scared me. That's when I knew he was serious when he grabbed the axe. Uh, Bill seemed to delight in finding new ways to punish his family. He would do shit like punch his son, Andrew, in the stomach, knocking the wind out of him then lock him in the coal shed or he'd beat his son Graham's head against the wall. You know, just fun dad stuff. Uh, he'd lock the door at precisely the time the children were supposed to be home and he would make the late ones sleep outside the entire night. He would regularly turn off the electricity and gas on winter evenings. He would surround himself with all the heaters while his children would sit in the cold. And of course, he's beating his wife Daisy still. He's molesting his daughters. Uh, other family members would uh, later recall some of his insanity. When Daisy's sister once came to stay with him, she slept in the living room. And then Bill took the living room fucking door off its hinges, told her to, to not get too comfortable. <laughs> when his own father came to live with him, Bill apparently uh, hit the now elderly man repeatedly, you know, would just punch his dad, accuse him of owing Bill money that he didn't know. Unmedicated paranoid schizophrenia manifested in a man rotten to the core. Too bad someone didn't ever kill that sick fuck and put an end to the misery his family had to endure. Rose, meanwhile, is struggling at school. She didn't have social skills, was not intelligent, had also become, uh, you know, overweight. She was being teased by the other children. She would react with aggression. By the age of 13, she's getting in fights regularly with her classmates. Rose also became very sexually precocious around the age of 13, indulging in exhibitionism. Uh, Graham, Rose's younger brother, later alleged that Rose had molested him when Rose was around 14 and he was 10. Rose later told investigators that she lost her virginity by around the age of 13. By the time she was sneaking, or by that time, she was also sneaking into pubs, having sex with older men. Uh, she probably lost her virginity, uh, you know, even younger than 13. Unlike Fred, she was initially not keen on disclosing her childhood of continual sexual trauma to investigators. A lot of details about her childhood came from other family members, from interviews with Rose by criminologists in recent years, long after she'd been, she'd been in prison for life. You know, like Fred had lost his virginity to his mom. Rose likely lost her virginity to her dad. Just, oh my God. Uh, let's see what Fred's up to. 1962. Uh, during that summer, he reconciles with his parents. Not sure what was said there. Sorry, mom and dad. I know I should have uh, not fucked those kids. Outside our own family, of course. Uh, that's that's the West way. I've learned my lesson. The outside world, I don't know what accent I'm even trying to do. The outside world, they just don't understand us. I need to protect the fam's privacy a little better. <laughs> Ever since I tried to do an Australian accent, now it's fucked up my shitty British accent. Uh, he started living at Moorcourt Cottage again. Runs back into Rena Costello, who's working as a waitress at a nearby cafe. They get hot and heavy again. Rena gets a tattoo on her right forearm that reads, Rena, John, true love. And it's accompanied by a heart with two arrows. 
Now 16, Rena's gotten in more trouble with the law. She's also now pregnant uh, with a child, not Fred's. He doesn't care. They get married. Fred and Rena marry on November 17th, 1962 at the Ledbury Register office. Their only guest is John, Fred's disgusting brother. It seems as if John, while we don't know a lot about him, was just as monstrous as his brother. Super raping and molesty and incestuous, uh, as we'll learn later. The newlyweds moved to Scotland into a small flat on Hospital Street, Coatbridge, uh, at that time a grimy industrial town. And their marriage is trouble from the beginning. Of course it is. For one thing, Fred's sexual appetite is insatiable. And he demands it whenever he wants. Even if Rena is like washing up, peeling potatoes, whatever, it's often quick and brutal. Rena often cries. Fred doesn't care. He apparently takes pleasure in pinching her while he has sex with her. What the fuck? What a weird detail. That was not something she asked for or wanted. She wasn't into, you know, some moderately violent BDSM. Or she was a submissive. She was just married to a sexual sadist who liked to hurt her during sex. Aggressive pinching. Not something I am even remotely interested in giving or receiving during sex or any other time. Uh, Fred abused Rena on a regular basis, slapping her around when she refused basically any demand of his or if his dinner wasn't ready on time. And it seems Fred may have also pushed her into prostitution. May have been her idea. She had dabbled in prostitution before. She now goes uh, back into it full-time while pregnant. Some sources say this angered Fred, who simply acted more violent towards her now in response. Others say he was the one who pushed her to do it. Those are the stories I believe. Uh, He'll later get off on watching Rose have sex with clients. He likely enjoyed this with Rena as well. On March 22nd, 1963, Rena gives birth to a baby girl, the girl she'd been pregnant with when she and Fred had gotten married. Rena wrote to his mom, Daisy West, Fred's mom, and said that she had miscarried and that they decided to adopt a little girl to take their baby's place. Why would she do this? Well, she lied to Fred's mom in this way because the baby was mixed race and, uh, you know, knew that his mom would be disgusted because, you know, uh, Fred's parents were super racist. The Wests, uh, super incestuous, dumb, and racist. Quality family. Quality family. Fred and Rena named the girl Charmaine Carol May- Mary. Uh, Fred's family doesn't buy the adoption story. For a while, Rena lives with Charmaine alone in a flat in the Bridgeton neighborhood of Glasgow. Fred's also upset with her. He's not upset she's having another, she had another man's baby. He's upset that the baby wasn't white because these are fucking classy people. Uh, the separation doesn't last long and by Christmas, they have reconciled. And then, <laughs> this is a detail I did not expect in this crazy story. Fred gets a job driving a Mr. Whippy ice cream van. Mr. Whippy ice cream van still being driven around England. Yes, this sexual psychopath is now a fucking ice cream truck driver. What a nightmare. Hey there, little nippers. What are we having today? Want some soft serve? Or do you like it hard? You like it hard, don't you? All the little nippers like it hard. That's what me dad taught me. Who wants an ice cream sandwich? Who wants a Fred West sandwich? You'll be the meat, you will. Come on, let's have some fun. It's not a good summer day if you don't get pregnant. I can't fucking believe this guy actually drove an ice cream truck. <laughs> it gets crazier with the ice cream truck. Ice cream truck's going to come back around soon. It's going to be even more absurd. Uh, Rena gives birth again in July 1964 to a baby girl that was undoubtedly Fred's with the same striking blue eyes. They named the girl Anna Marie. Both Anna Marie and Charmaine sleep in the bottom of a bunk bed in which Fred puts slats across the space between the bunks, panning the children in like animals. When Fred was at, was at home, you know, during the day, he insisted that the girls be kept in their kid cages. And he, uh, <laughs> they only be let out when he was at work. I mean, I get it. You know, he has to deal with screaming, ice cream, happy kids all day at work. And then he has to come home to more kids, right? Who wants to bring, bring work home? He just didn't want to, you know, uh, bring work into his home life. I'm, I'm off the clock with the fucking kids in cages already. Uh, around this time, Fred begins having various several affairs, uh, or various affairs. 
That was redundant. Barry is several, uh, including one with 21, a 21-year-old girl who worked in a factory bodily mineral water. That girl got pregnant, gave birth to a son she named Stephen. Meanwhile, another girlfriend gives birth to a son named Gareth. Dude, dude was a big fan of sticking his dick into whatever hole he could fit it in with no real thought to consequences. Not a big fan of, uh, you know, wrapping it up. Uh, Rena knew he was being unfaithful. So was she. She was also having affairs. She started seeing a bus driver named John McLaughlin. She's fucking the ice cream truck guy and the bus driver. Probably has her eyes on the garbage truck driver too. She loves a good truck fuck. Uh, Things are going really well for the young couple. Uh, 1965, uh, things, you know, get worse. Fred runs over a four-year-old boy in his ice cream cream truck and kills him. (laughs) But definitely did not expect that detail. An angry crowd gathers around the scene of the scene of the crime, accusing Fred of reckless driving. Dude broke the most important rule of ice cream truck driving. Don't run over the kids. Even more important than the second most important rule of ice cream truck driving. Don't fuck the kids. He probably broke that rule too. I can't believe he actually ran a kid over and killed his kid in an ice cream truck. Get yourself served. Sprinkles. Chocolate tops. Waffle cones. Thump, thump. Sorry, little fella. Mind the tires. Get yourself served. Sherbet cones, nut cones, mind the tires. What the fuck is going on in this story? Uh, even weirder, according to a few sources, I, this is what they say. I find it crazy. Apparently, fatal accidents involving children in ice cream trucks were relatively common. <laughs> I know it's not funny. It's just so ridiculous. In Glasgow at this time, and Fred is released from the police station with no charges. Because they couldn't prove it wasn't the kid's fault. What the fuck was going on back in Glasgow around this time? Just, you know, just running kids down in ice cream trucks on the reg. Despite not getting in legal trouble, Fred apparently doesn't like the stain on his reputation. Doesn't like, you know, the way people are looking at him. Yeah, you run, you run over one kid in an ice cream truck van, you know, whatever, ice cream van, and people fucking mean mugging you. So he takes his family to Much Markle back home. Uh, most of them. He leaves Reno alone in Glasgow. Uh, they would soon reunite. Fred and the children would return to Scotland, continue with his unstable relationship with Rena. They live in a caravan now, an RV, where Fred and Rena share the main bedroom and the children sleep in a tiny room next to their parents. Excuse me. At some point, they added uh, two young women who lived with them and slept wherever they could find a spot to lay down when, you know, Fred was not fucking them. Fred now has a little harem. Uh, the ice cream truck murderer now has a harem of women. Uh, Rena not ecstatic about this. Soon she calls John McLaughlin, right? That bus driver. Asked him to come pick her up. On the appointed day, Fred returns home unexpectedly and there's an all-out brawl. Ice cream truck driver versus uh, bus driver. Let's get ready to rumble! Tonight in the Much Marco Community Center Auditorium, we have the showdown to end all showdowns. Bus driving wife fucker John McLaughlin takes on the double brain damage. Former Mr. Whippy child-killing incestuous ice cream truck driver Frederick West. The Scottish school bus brawler versus the much Markle maniac. Two men fighting for the right to keep entering one vagina. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. This event is brought to you by Whipple. Wake up and smell the Whipple, you stupid pile of shit! Possibly made by the makers of Snapple, it's Whipple! Whipple kicks like a pound of pure Colombian cocaine washed down with rattlesnake venom. This isn't your mommy's energy drink. With Whipple, it's not a matter of if it will kill you, it's a matter of fucking when. But fear not, you fucking crybaby! Whipple's packed with enough caffeine to give you enough adrenaline to not punch the Grim Reaper and send his skeleton ass looking for another mortal coil to shed. There is no heaven! There is no hell! There is only Whipple! 
You will have so much energy after just one can, you will literally not be able to die. Whipple will not allow it. So shut the fuck up and shut a can of Whipple up your candy ass. Whipple! New apricot nunchucks and blackberry switchblade flavors now available. Uh, wow. If you're a new listener, uh, I bet that was a bit jarring. Uh, go back an episode to fully understand the power of Whipple if you, if you need to. Anyway, during this uh, bus driver, ice cream truck driver showdown, that was fun for me. Uh, Fred eventually took the girl Charmaine and Anna Marie as hostages and would not let her go. Uh, not let them go. Sorry, both girls. Uh, Rena leaves with John. Now Fred is left with the two children and the uh, two young women in the caravan. One of these women, 16-year-old Anna McFall, becomes 24-year-old Fred's primary lover now. Lucky lady. Fred put his two children in foster homes, occasionally reuniting with them before sending them off again because he either didn't understand how traumatic that would be to children or didn't care. Anna McFall continued being his lover, and for the next several years, Rena would come back and forth between John McLaughlin's house and Fred's. In the spring of 1967, Fred gets Anna McFall pregnant. Of course he does. Fred gets everyone pregnant. He's, he's very potent. Anna tries to convince him to divorce Rena and marry her, which Fred does not want to do. Then in the final weeks of her pregnancy in July of 1967, Anna McFall goes missing and is never found. Not alive anyways. Fred would deny murdering her after being caught for other killings in 1994, but he for sure murdered her. Anna was likely his first murder victim, almost certainly. I, I'm going to say certainly. He'd later discuss Anna's murder in private prison visits, telling one prison visitor straight up that he stabbed Anna to death. And then when Anna's remains were finally discovered, there was a long length of cord wrapped around her wrist and her corpse had been dismembered. Investigators would find uh, that a considerable number of Anna's hand and foot bones were absent from her grave. And this matches what Fred would do to the corpses of other women we know he killed later. He would usually remove their fingers and feet to make it much harder to identify their remains. Uh, the skeleton of Fred and Anna's unborn child was found nestled beside her. So really, this is, this is his first two murders. Further incriminating Fred, Anna and the baby's unmarked grave was less than a mile from Moorcourt Cottage, Fred's childhood home, where it wouldn't be discovered for 27 years. After her disappearance, Fred moves his RV to a caravan site in the village of Bishop's Cleave, almost exactly 30 miles from Muchmarkle. Future wife and killer Rose Letts was then a 13-year-old girl living just a half mile away on Tobyfield Road. Rena now moves back in with him. They take the children out of foster care, live as a family for a year. Fred gets work as a laborer at Old Acres Mill, a flour and animal feed manufacturer. During this time that a 15-year-old girl named Mary Bastholm goes missing while she's waiting at a bus stop. Mary was a waitress at the Poppin' Cafe, a cafe Fred frequented at that time. Her remains have never been found and in all likelihood, based on her age, looks, when and where she disappeared, very likely Fred's second victim. Or again, I guess I should say third victim. On February 6, 1968, Fred's mother Daisy dies following complications after a surgery to remove a gallstone at the age of 44. Good riddance, Pedo. Get out of here. Uh, following her death, Fred commits a series of thefts, moves from job to job. He becomes a delivery driver for a village bakery. And it's while he's working at that bakery that he will meet Rose Letts. Let's check in now with Rose. In the spring of 1969 at the Letts house, at the Lett house, uh, now 15-year-old Rose's mom, Daisy, decides that she needs to leave her husband, Bill. She brings 15-year-old Rose with her two younger sons, goes to live with her daughter, Glennis, who lived with her boyfriend, a car mechanic named Jim Tyler. In her new home, Rose stops attending school. Instead, she looks after Glenn, Glennis, Glennie's uh, snack caravan. Never seen that first name before. Interesting. Uh, Jim will later state that on several occasions when he'd come back to restock the caravan, uh, he would see Rose getting out of a car, her clothing disheveled, clearly having just had sex with a, a man much older than her. 
Many of these men she's having sex with workmen, traveling salesmen. Again, she's been so highly sexualized by her father's abuse. Daisy Letts would then move her children again a few months later in the summer of 1969 to a chicken farm in the village of Toddington. After a few months living there, Rose announces that she's going to go back and live with her father. There would be speculation within the family that she had gone back to her abuser because she didn't see it as abuse. She saw it as normal. She missed her dad, including missing him sexually. So fucked up. Daisy Letts, unable to support her children by herself, also moves back in with Bill a few weeks later. Sometime at the end of 1969, still 15-year-old Rose finds regular work at a tea shop. And uh, while she's waiting at the bus stop to go to work one day, another August or September, she meets a man with wild curly hair and bushy sideburns, Fred West. The two timelines have now united, the killer and the future killer, now together. Before we delve into their twisted relationship, this seems like the best spot, least disruptive spot in the timeline for today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for listening to this week's sponsors. Back to the beginning now of Fred and Rose's, uh, Fred and Rose West's relationship. After meeting the teenager, the now 27-year-old Fred showers Rose with attention and gifts that were probably stolen. It was the first time that Rose had ever been properly courted, if you could call it that. Rose was openly flirtatious and highly sexual. Didn't mind when Fred spoke plainly about sex or came on to her. He, of course, reminded her on so many levels of her father, of the kind of man she was used to. He told her that he had two young children, that his wife had abandoned uh, the family, and uh, Rose, who loved children, liked Fred even more now. Rose became a frequent visitor to Fred's caravan, hanging out with the two little girls. This also meant she started skipping out on work, so Fred would give her a few shillings a week for Rose to give to her mom. Soon, Rose brings Fred uh, home to her parents' house. Bill and Daisy, they don't care for uh, Fred. Bill tells his daughter that Fred is a liar and a dirty gypsy, quote-unquote. Was her dad jealous? I have to think so. Shortly after this, Rose's parents discovered that Rose is spending all her time with the caravan and Bill orders her to stop seeing Fred. She, of course, does not listen. Soon, in addition to having frequent sex with Fred, Rose began seeing sexual clients at his caravan. It was a match made in heaven. Fred was used to dating women who also worked as sex workers. He liked it, and Rose, she liked being a sex worker uh, from all accounts. Uh, near the end of the summer of 1969, Rose, after being reported as a runaway teen by her dad, is taken to a home for troubled teens in nearby Cheltenham, uh, she was only allowed to visit her parents or go to work in theory and was kept on a strict curfew. But when Rose said she was going to see her parents, she would just go see Fred. And Rose also started sending Fred uh, love letters. It was a strange mix, their relationship early on, a very childlike young teenage love on Rose's part mixed with a very adult, highly sexual relationship. Uh, meanwhile, when he's not fucking teens or doing God knows what else, Fred's getting into more legal trouble around this time. On August 23rd, 1969, he's reported for failing to produce documents for his car. He's warned about some unpaid fines from June and that he's going to go to prison if he doesn't pay them. Five days later, he, appear, he appears at Cheltenham uh, Magistrate's Court, charged with the theft of fence parcels from one of his employers. 
couple weeks later, he's given 30 days in jail for failing to pay his fines. He will spend his time at Her Majesty's Prison, Gloucester, or Gloucester, a grim fortress-like building on the western side of the city. Fred's children, again, put into foster care. These poor kids. Uh, they did not hit the familial lottery. On November 29th, 1969, Rose turned 16. Stake no longer keep her as a ward. She immediately leaves the Cheltenham home. Uh, her parents now give her an ultimatum. If she sees Fred again, they will disown her. But if she stops seeing him and finds a job, she can stay with her family. So extra fucked up since her dad's motivations here are not parental, uh, in my mind, clearly. A few weeks later, Rose comes downstairs with her bags packed and announces her decision to leave the home and she makes her way to Fred's caravan. Sometime over the next few months, Fred gets his kids back out of foster care again and the four begin to live as a family. The children will go back and forth between Fred's caravan and foster care several times in the first half of 1970. Rena shows up at some point, uh, demands that she take her girls with her, but her life isn't stable enough to keep them. Uh, in June of 1970, Fred finds a house for his family in the city of Gloucester, the place where they would live for the next 24 years. Let's talk a little about Gloucester now. Fred and Rose move to the big city, at least big for them. Gloucester is a small city with a population of under 100,000 when they moved there, approximately 100 miles west of London, roughly 2,000 years old. It was first established as a Roman fort in the first century CE. Much, much later in the mid 19th, uh, in the mid and late 19th century, Gloucester booms under the reign of Queen Victoria with the expansion of the railway, uh, building of the canal system, the engagement of the docks. Hundreds of brick houses are built to accommodate new residents. The new middle-class developments include buildings on Midland Road and Cromwell Street, the two streets Fred and Rose would live on. By the time the West arrive, Gloucester is in decline, having decreased in population when after World War II, many of its residents leave for the suburbs. The West first live at 25 Midland Road in a large semi-detached concrete building divided into three flats. Rose and Fred move into the ground floor. Uh, Fred went to work as a fitter for Cotswold Tires. The job didn't pay much, and soon he resorts to petty theft again to make rent. He later works for his landlord doing odd jobs. On October 17, 1970, Rose gives birth to the couple's first child together, a child they name Heather Ann. And poor Heather Ann. Her tale, unsurprisingly, will be a sad one. Just as Rose starts acclimating to life with three children, Fred gets arrested for stealing tires from his old job, jailed for nine months. Rose is now 17, living alone in the city where she has no family, uh, no, no family that's worth a shit anyways, uh, knows no one. Rose does not handle, handle her isolation very well. She takes her frustration with life out on her children, smashing bowls over their heads, beating them with wooden spoons, binding them with leather belts, uh, sometimes tying them to their beds. The flat they're living in is filthy, covered with children's clothes, soiled nappies, toys, dirty plates. Nightmare. On March 28th, 1971, Rose takes Char uh, Charmaine to Gloucestershire, Gloucestershire Royal Hospital. Charmaine was eight. Doctors find that she has an ugly puncture wound in her left ankle. Wonder how that happened. Rose was reportedly especially cruel to Charmaine. Was this wound a punishment that had gone too far or an accident? Authorities would never know. Social services are, are not called. The, the kids from Fred and Rose West would actually go to the ER during their childhoods uh, a cumulative total of over 30 times for various abuse injuries. Ugh. On May 7th, 1971, Rose takes the children to visit Fred at Lay Hill Prison, where Fred presents his wife with a painting he'd made in a cell. No gifts for the kids, but he gives his wife a painting of Rose naked, kneeling in front of a burning sunset. Wonder how many times he jerked off to that painting. 100? 1,000? Uh, they schedule another visit for June 15th, and just a few days after that second visit, Charmaine goes missing. The girls usually walk to St. James Junior School together, but the morning she disappears, Rose kept her behind. 
and though she would never admit to it to authorities as such, Rose would certainly or almost certainly murdered her. Her first kill is her stepdaughter. Fed up with a little girl who went to bed at night and dreamed of being rescued by her mother, Rena. Some of her other surviving children would later report that they were positive Rose killed Charmaine. Rose told anyone who asked that Charmaine's real mother, Rena, had come to get Charmaine, and the school believed her. Uh, Fred is released from prison June 24th, 1971. Rose reportedly told him about Charmaine, and Fred got to work dumping her body, which Rose had stashed in the cellar. He carried the corpse up the stairs, dug a grave in the yard near the back door of the flat. After his later arrest in 1994, Fred would tell authorities that he couldn't bring himself to dismember Charmaine because she was so young and pure. Ah, what, a, what, a, what a nice guy. What a, what a real sweetheart. So while Rose never admitted to killing Charmaine, Fred revealed that, uh, you know, basically she did. Or basically revealed that she did. Years later, acting on information from Fred, authorities will find her grave. Despite now officially being partners in a terrible crime, the pressure of worrying about getting caught for murdering a child is too much for Rose, and she and Fred briefly separate. She brings baby Heather with her back to her parents' house. Bill will not let her in. Later, uh, Fred appears at the house, tells Rose, come on, Rosie, you know what we've got between us. And then he tells uh, you know Rose that if she doesn't come back within 10 minutes, her place in his bed is going to be taken by another woman. What a romantic. Look, baby, you know I love you. I want you. I want you so bad. You're my soulmate. But if you're not back at the house in like 10 minutes, I'm going to smash some strange puss in our bed. You know, life is short. You know, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, Rose takes him up on the offer. Once back at the West Flat, Rose becomes a full-time prostitute, a gig Fred enjoyed because he literally drilled a hole in the wall so he could watch her with her clients. Fred would apparently complain if Rose wasn't loud and enthusiastic enough with her clients. Uh, he, you know, uh, he would he would be mad. And uh, while he was away, if she had sex with the client, he would make her talk to him about it in great detail. Dude was kinky. Sex with just Rose or just anyone was not stimulating enough for him. He and Rose soon began trying out threesomes, variety of sex toys, playing with some BDSM. How into all of this was Rose? Uh, I think largely because of her childhood, she was really into it. She did not have any sexual boundaries, it seems. Also, while some sources make her seem passive in all this, others assert that, and more recent sources assert that, according to the court testimony of some later would-be victims who were raped by Fred and Rose but not murdered, and the testimony from some of them who didn't come out uh, forward with their testimony until after Rose's trial, she was the lustful leader in all of this. Uh, she was the one pushing things forward and uh, seemed to them like the, she was the sadistic alpha in their fucked up relationship. Perhaps it went back and forth. I will say after looking at a lot of sources, Rose does not come across as an adult victim, at least not outside of her father. She comes across as every bit as twisted and horrific as Fred, if not maybe a little bit more so. And, you know, not really that surprising. She was raised in an equally horrific household. Uh, while Fred and Rose are really enjoying their incredibly adventurous sex life, their life is far from stress-free. At the moment, they're pretty worried about Rena, who's now been coming around more and more often, wondering where the fuck her daughter Charmaine is. In August, Rena goes to Fred's family home of Moorcourt Cottage, asks for Fred's father, or asks Fred's father Walter to help her find Charmaine. No word on whether or not that piece of shit did help. A short time later, Fred agrees to take Rena to find Charmaine. But first, he wants to take her out to a pub. Let's have some drinks. They get there, he loads her up on drink after drink after drink. Pretty soon she's good and hammered. And when she's unable to stand up straight on her own, he walks her to his car and then strangles her to death. Murder number three, or actually, I guess four for Fred, murder number five between them both. He then takes her body back to his house where he dismembers her, cutting her off her legs at the hip, removes her kneecaps, and a total of 35 finger and toe bones. Then he buries her at a place called Letterbox Field, just a few hundred yards away from the jolly old family west home at Moorcourt Cottage. 
Uh, sadly, because of all the dysfunction in her life, broken family, almost non-existent, stable social circle, no one ever seriously looks for Rena. Her disappearance is never seriously investigated. Fred gets away with another killing. In November of 1971, a young single mother named Elizabeth Agius moves into the house adjacent to Fred and Rose. Elizabeth quickly made friends with her new neighbors, not knowing they were harboring a secret sexual attraction to her. Not knowing that at first, at least. Of course they were. These two wanted to fuck just everything. Elizabeth was surprised by how frank the two were about their romantic arrangement. They openly said they weren't married, but had children together and that they slept with other people. Wink, wink, hint, hint, Elizabeth. Uh, one time when Fred and Rose were getting back home uh, in the early hours of the morning, they surprised Elizabeth by just straight up telling her that they had been, quote, driving around looking for young girls. They were looking, they said, for girls between 15 and 17 who could pass for virgins and live with the West while they became her pimps. <laughs> they just straight up told their neighbor this. Elizabeth is shocked. She uh, thought they were joking. They were not. Imagine your neighbors telling you that, right? Like your neighbors get home late. You happen to be outside, see them. Oh, late night. You two do anything fun? <laughs> Tried to. Uh, trolled for teen puss for hours to whore them out, you know, but you know, you know what they say, pimping ain't easy. So we're gonna call it a night. Look for some young strange to fuck some other night, you know, live another day. <laughs> for fuck's sake. A few months later, Elizabeth is in the kitchen when, uh, with Rose when Rose straight up tells her that Fred and, and she want to have a threesome with her. Elizabeth uh, is shocked and then further shocked when Rose tells her all about uh, her clients and shows her special pills, she said, uh, prevented STDs. Uh, they did not. It's believed the West picked up multiple STDs over the years, including syphilis. Uh, Elizabeth continued visiting the West after this. Makes, makes me wonder if she was at least thinking about having a threesome with them after hearing all this. Uh, then one visit, she's given a cup of tea. Shortly after drinking the tea, she begins to feel drowsy. She passes out. When she wakes up, she is in bed with Fred and Rose, who are both naked. Uh, they've just had a threesome, one that she never consented to. Rose goes out of her way now to tell her that Fred has just fucked her uh, while she was unconscious. And then the couple helps get her dressed. Uh, she's still drowsy, and they take her and her baby son home. Yes, there's a baby son nearby for all of this. Elizabeth had been terribly assaulted. Uh, yes, uh, she was also lucky. She narrowly escaped being murdered. Many others would not be so fortunate. Elizabeth's story would not become public knowledge until Fred and Rose were caught for murders over two decades later. Uh, Elizabeth did speak to police right after it happened, said she would uh, she would not testify at trial due to fear her husband would leave her if he found out. So tragic. Sad she was, wor uh, she was worried, you know, or, and, and married to a man who had she feared would leave her for being raped and sad that the West got away with, you know, more of their bullshit. Uh, Rose and Fred officially tie the knot, uh, 1972. Did you forget they were not technically, mar technically married? I did. Uh, they hitch up on January 29th, 1972 at the Gloucester Register Office. Finally, no more living in sin. About time these two dirtbags cleaned up their acts. And of course they don't clean up shit. Uh, the two now decide that they need a house large enough to raise a big family. And also, of course, <laughs> have a separate area for prostitution. Wasn't long before Fred found exactly what they were looking for. 25 Cromwell Street, just a short distance from where they already lived. This address will become so infamous in Britain after they are later arrested, it will be bulldozed and no structure will be built in its place. Uh, shortly after they move, Elizabeth pays them a visit for reasons that are never made clear. Why did she check out the new home of the people who had previously raped her? I wish I knew. Fred shows her their, uh, their new cellar, which he says he's thinking about using as a special area for Rose's clients. And then he adds, quote, I can soundproof it and use it as my torture chamber. Wink, wink. Fun. I'm sure Elizabeth is super happy with her decision to go check things out and feels super safe around Fred. As her rapist explains how he's going to turn his new cellar into a proper fuck dungeon. 
help pay the bills at their new home. The West start talk, uh, taking in lodgers now, lodgers that Rose occasionally will slip into bed next to and try to have sex with in the middle of the night. Just another fun little rapey sex game the West like to play. <laughs> oh, whoops. Oh, oh man. Oh, how, sorry about this. You're awake. How, how did my naked pussy sneak in here? Gosh, dang, I've got such a rascally puss. I was hoping to keep sleeping in bed with my hubby, but old rascal puss down here wanted to hop in your bed and play a game of hide that dick. Oh my heck, rascal puss. You're a real scoundrel twat. Uh, also, shortly after they move in, an, an illegitimate son of Fred's from Scotland, Stephen, we mentioned him briefly earlier, comes to live with them for a while. <sighs> Wonder what he thought of this place. Uh, amazing to me how many kids uh, just show up show up in this suck to in and out. This These two had zero interest in birth control. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Fred had hundreds of illegitimate kids running around England. In June of 1972, Rose gives birth to a second child, a baby girl named May, just what his family needs, uh, another kid in the home. One day during the summer of 1972, Rose and Fred let uh, let Fred's eight-year-old daughter, Anna Marie, the girl he had with his first, first wife, Rena, the baby mama of his that he murdered, they lead her down into the cellar to the space Fred has described as his torture chamber. And Fred tells his daughter this day that he's going to, quote, help her. He's going to do his duty as a father. On the floor is a bowl, some cloths, a vibrator, and tape. Fucking what? Anna Marie starts to cry as Rose removes her clothes. Rose then proceeds to sit on Anna Marie's face while Fred binds his daughter's hands, pries her legs apart. Then he rapes his daughter while Rose both watches and engages. Rose says that if Anna Marie ever speaks about what has happened, she will get a hitting. Also says that what they did was normal. There's no reason to be upset. It happens in all kinds of families. It's all part of growing up. Ah, sadly, she was sadly correct about part of that because we know similar shit went down in both her own family and in Fred's. Instead of denouncing it, these uh, former victims enthusiastically embrace it. They make the transition from victim to perpetrator with gusto. The story is so fucking ridiculous. A little while later, Fred brings home a long metal bar bent in a U-shape, fit with handles. Rose then tells Anna Marie to go tidy up the cellar. When she gets down there, she's strapped to the frame. Rose whips her. Fred comes down, rapes her again. Uh, Rose leaves Anna Marie downstairs for a while while Fred uh, then leaves and then they let her have a bath and then they pour salt into the water uh, saying that it's good for her. Why do they really pour salt into the water? Because they're fucking psychopaths and they're just torturing their daughter. This is now a regular part of young Anna Marie's life. Uh, it was the West Way. In November 1972, Fred and Rose are driving through the outskirts of Tewksbury, a little town just 10 miles outside of Gloucester. I love that name. Oh, Tewksbury. Sounds so British. Uh, when they see a teenage girl hiking on the side of the road. Her name is Carolyn Owens, Caroline Owens, just 17. She regularly hitchhiked to see her boyfriend. When she got into West Car, Caroline thought she was getting a ride with a respectable married couple and was enthusiastic when they proposed that she come live with them as they're living in any. Back at their house, she will share a room with Anna Marie. And quickly she notices that something is, you know, off about the couple. Rose strokes her hair a lot, uh, often accidentally barges in on her while she's taking a bath. Oh! <laughs> Whoops! How, how'd I get in here and see you naked again? Uh, Fred talks about sex constantly in front of Caroline, claims that he per, that he performs abortions as well. I don't know how the fuck you work that into a conversation. It's not weird at all. Uh, so, Caroline, how are things going with the kids? I'm, good. I, I, I think you're doing a great job. Watch them. Really do. Oh, and uh, how's your sex life? Good? Okay, good, good. My, mine is great. So much fucking. So much. Uh, and the best part is if I get anyone pregnant, they don't have to go to a clinic. No, no, no. I just, no, I do it myself. I never did well in school, a couple head injuries, but I do know my way around a coat hanger. Anywho, uh, who wants some bangers for supper? I'm craving bangers. Uh, many nights Caroline spends in the house ends with the lodgers bringing back girlfriends, engaging in some kind of sexual free-for-all. 
after orgies going on at the house this time, after a while, Caroline participates in a few. She was curious. They'd, they'd worn her down. And then finally creeped out by her new lovers, Fred and Rose. She didn't exactly say what line they finally crossed. She decides to leave the job and leave the house after a few weeks. Uh, Fred and Rose not happy to see their teen lover go. So, as one does, they concoct a plan to abduct Caroline. And they put it into place on December 6th, 1972. Excuse me. Uh, they wait for the time they knew she would be leaving her boyfriend's house. Then they pull up and offer her a lift. Caroline accepts. They hadn't left on the worst of terms. And she climbs into the back seat. Rose then slips into the back seat as well. Starts combing uh, or coming on to Caroline immediately. Smiling flirtatiously. Putting an arm over Caroline's shoulder. Fred starts asking her if, they want, if she wants to have a three-way. Uh, Rose begins touching Caroline's breasts and face. Caroline tries pushing her away. She wants out of the car. That's not going to happen. Uh, soon, Fred has driven her to a deserted, muddy field. They won't let her out of the car. Fred turns around, calls her a bitch, starts punching her, keeps punching her until she blacks out. When Caroline comes to, she's still in the backseat of the car, but now she's tied up. Her arms are tied behind her back. There's a piece of tape over her mouth. They're driving again. Not good. The car soon pulls up to, <clears throat> excuse me, 25 Cromwell. Late in the evening, they carry their former nanny inside, lay her down on a mattress, and violently sexually assault her. Fred beats her with the buckle end of his leather belt. He threatens to kill her, saying, I'll keep you in the cellar and let my friends have you, and when we're finished, we'll kill you and bury you under the paving stones of Gloucester. Uh, he said it like he had done th this exact thing before. Then in the morning, Fred tells Caroline he's so sorry, and then it all been Rose's idea. He asks Caroline for forgiveness and wants to know if she wouldn't mind coming back and working for them as their nanny. His head is so messed up. Again, to go back to no sexual boundaries and his literally brain damaged head, there's a good chance he didn't think he'd cross the line with her. They couldn't be forgiven. I mean, sure, he kidnapped and beat her and raped her, but he'd also been nice to her sometimes and he liked her. So why can't they still be friends? He's fucking insane. Caroline knows she'll only live if she says, yeah, no problem. All's forgiven. So she does. Then she helps clean up the house, plays a little bit with Anna Marie and Heather, has a hot bath. And then when no one's paying attention, quietly gets the fuck out of there. Smart meat sack, playing it cool, doing some acting just to save her, uh, you know, to keep, to stay alive. Uh, back at her mom's house, Caroline is hesitant to confess what has happened, but her mom sees the bruising on her face, calls the police. Detectives uh, now go to Cromwell Street, interview Rose. When Detective Kevin Peer, uh, Price asks Rose if the allegations are true, she replies, don't be fucking daft. What do you think I am? Uh, they search the car, find a button from Caroline's coat, as well as a roll of brown tape. Fred and Rose are then arrested. Uh, and then once interrogated by authorities, they openly admit to sexually assaulting Caroline. Now they're going to get in so much trouble, right? No. Uh, Caroline does not want to give evidence in court, crippling the prosecution's case against the West. Caroline's case is still heard, though, uh, on Friday, January 12th, 1973. Fred now 31, Rose only 19. Uh, she just found out she was pregnant again. The two are charged with indecent assault, uh, indecent assault causing bodily harm. The defense claims that Caroline had practically asked to have sex portrays the West as sympathetic, a sympathetic young couple with several children. The magistrates don't think that Fred has it in him to be so violent, nor does Rose, and they're fined 25 pounds each, and they get to go free. Shortly after this, Caroline is so upset by the decision, she attempts to take her own life and thankfully is not successful. Holy shit. They just admitted to sexual assault and they get a small fine. Rather than have this be a lesson to Fred and Rose, you know, this mer merely encourages them to take things further. They've abducted, beaten, raped a teenage girl and just been fined. This doesn't exactly put a uh, a real fear of the criminal justice system into them. They did think after this, might be just better just to murder girls they rape, uh, you know, rather than let them go and risk them, you know, ratting them out later. It's, it's inconvenient. Uh, just three months later, a young seamstress named Lin Linda Gao 
disappears on April 19th, 1973, two weeks before her 20th birthday. Her mother remembered her, uh, remembered seeing her go out for drinks a couple weeks before with a woman who looked a little overweight. In actuality, the woman was five months, five months pregnant, and the woman was Rose West. For a second, when I first read this, I was surprised that she'd be out grabbing pints while five months pregnant, but then I remembered, <laughs> what's this is Rose West we're talking about. Of course she was drinking. Uh, to be fair to Rose, I guess, doctors didn't link alcohol to fetal alcohol syndrome until 1973, right around the time this happened. Not that she would have read that literature and be like, oh, okay, I guess I gotta change my ways. I gotta protect the kids more. Uh, likely that Linda went willingly to Fred and Rose's flat, may have even willingly had sex with them, but then Fred murdered her, buried her in a concrete hole in the garage, and then almost certainly decapitated her. Uh, likely murder number six, collectively, for the West. A few weeks after her daughter disappeared, Linda's mother, June, was asking about her whereabouts around town when she recognized Rose West as the woman her daughter had gone out for drinks with. At first, Rose said she uh, didn't know anything about Linda, but then June noticed that Rose was wearing Linda's slippers. Awkward. She also noticed several items of Linda's clothing on the West's washing line outside their home. When June pointed all this out, then R Rose was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right. I do remember. Uh, we did have drinks. We hung out for a while and then, uh, you know, my husband killed her. No, he, no she was like, uh, and then she left. Uh, don't know where she went. Hope you find her. Initially, June believed Rose. She was the same age as her daughter. She didn't seem like anyone who would be a killer. It would be 21 years before June would discover the truth about what happened to her daughter. Four months later, in August of 1973, 19-year-old murderer Rose West gives birth to a son, Stephen. Another kid for the Hell House. Now let's talk about Carol Ann Cooper. Carol was 15 in November of 1973, a girl going through a normal adolescent rough patch. Her parents had recently separated. She'd been placed in foster care at Pine Pines Children's Home. She was dealing with, uh, you know, a lot of shit. On November 10th, Carol and her boyfriend went to the movies. Around 9 p.m., Carol's boyfriend dropped her off at the bus stop. Carol was headed to see her grandmother for the weekend. At 9.15, her boyfriend saw the bus pull away. It was the last time anyone would report seeing Carol alive. Once again, Fred and Rose picked up the hitchhiking girl, then bound her with tape and cords. She was likely sexually tortured based on later forensic examination of her bones and eventually killed. Then Fred dismembered Carol's body, removing her legs at the hip and cutting off her head, and then he buried her in the torture cellar. Likely West murder victim number seven. Where were the kids in all this? Uh, sadly, they met a lot of the victims. They heard their parents raping them. They may have even heard them being murdered, uh, but they didn't know for sure they'd been murdered. Even if they had, there was no way they were going to risk telling anyone and getting killed themselves. Carol's disappearance was suspicious. She'd run away before, but investigators pointed out that if she'd run away again, she wouldn't have left all of her possessions behind. She was registered as a missing person and West Mercia police investigated, but turned up no leads. Another girl would go missing shortly thereafter. Lucy Partington was an upper middle-class girl. Her father was an industrial chemist. Her mom was an architect. In 1973, she was 21, finishing her final year at Exeter University, where she was studying medieval English. She had recently converted to Roman Catholicism and spent Christmas at her mother's house in the village of Gretton near Cheltenham. On the morning of December 27th, 1973, Lucy got up, went to Cheltenham with her brother. They split up. Lucy went to visit a friend where she wrote a letter applying to postgraduate course at London's Courtauld Institute. She borrowed a stamp from her friend, left the house at about 10, 15 p.m. to go to the bus stop. Before she left, her friend's father offered to give her a ride home. Lucy said if she missed the bus, she'd come back and take that ride. She never came back. And like with Carol, no one ever saw her again. Fred and Rose picked her up and took her to the cellar at their house. Highly unlikely based on accounts of anyone who knew her that she went willingly to the West House for some sort of sexual adventure. Odds are for, uh, Fred and Rose lured her into their car under other pretenses. 
Rose had become a master manipulator by this point, had become an expert in getting girls to let their guards down around her. I mean, these girls were, you know, roughly her age. She was also a mother of young children. She spoke in a soft voice. She didn't look threatening. She dressed like your average housewife. She'd gotten really good at being the bait for Fred and Rose. Investigators later speculated based on a confession from Fred and some limited forensic evidence that Fred and Rose kept Lucy tied up in the basement for seven days. Ugh, after that, Fred used a cheap stainless steel kitchen knife to dismember Lucy and accidentally cut himself badly in the process. Sadly, not badly enough to die or something. Uh, like the others, he decapitated her and removed other parts before dumping her body in a shoddy grave. Victim number eight. Lucy was reported as missing person and an extensive search for her began. Uh, no one thought she was the kind of girl who would run away. But sadly, with no good leads, police would not turn up anything that would lead them to 25 Cromwell Street. More victims quickly followed in the early 70s, the height of their murder spree by far. Teresa Siegenthaler, or Siegenthaler was born in a small town in Switzerland. In 1974, she was a 21-year-old sociology student at the Woolwich College of Further Education in London. In April of 1974, uh, Therese attended a party in Deptford, South London, I think I said Therese earlier, if I didn't, Therese. Uh, the next day, she set out to hitchhike in North Wales, intending to catch a ferry to Ireland to meet with a priest who she wanted to speak to, uh, uh, talk to uh, about uh, South African politics is what they wanted to discuss. Couldn't think how to phrase that very simple sentence there. Uh, once again, she'd never make it. Fred and Rose picked her up. Once again, Fred dismembered her, took some of her bones, including her collarbone, number nine. Again, highly doubt she was heading out for a sexcapade based on what her plans were and those who knew her. She was tricked into getting in that car. Like the previous victim, no one thought Therese was someone who would run away. Police searched for her, but didn't know if she'd gone missing in London or in Ireland. And again, you know, they had nothing to point towards. No, there was nothing that pointed towards 25 Cromwell Street. On November 14th, 1974, 15-year-old Shirley Lloyd is getting ready to take a bus back home from work after a date. She described in sources as a strikingly attractive girl who had, like Carol Ann Cooper, spent much of her life in foster care. Unlike Carol, she'd been adopted by a council workman named Jim Hibbert or Jim Hubbard and his wife. Shirley met her boyfriend after her shift at the Deben at the Debenhams makeup counter for a date. The two bought a bag of fries, watched the boats go by on the river, and then at 9:30, Shirley got on a bus. And for whatever reason, they are even crueler with Shirley than they had been with previous victims. So often the case with killers, they keep upping the fucked up ante the longer they kill. Fred and Rose wrapped tape around her head 11 or 12 times, covering it completely, insert a plastic tube into her nose so she can still breathe, some kind of fucked up, you know, hardcore BDSM sensory deprivation shit, but torture, like with the others, Shirley is killed and dismembered. She's likely sexually tor tortured for a period of possibly several days before being killed. Victim number 10. Their cellar now a resting place for uh, four corpses. Still, the police have no leads, and it's not likely they will have, uh, they will, you know, would have seen 25 Cromwell Place as a place where these girls met their ends. For one thing, many kids, you know, many lodgers are living there. So unusual for killers to rape, torture, and kill in a home with multiple children living in it, a home right in the middle of town, a home with borders coming and going. Uh, these lodgers would sometimes complain about banging and crashing in the cellar late at night, but it wouldn't be for 20 years that they will know the source of these sounds. Imagine being one of those borders and putting those pieces together decades later, right? Man, that would haunt me. On April 11th, 1975, Juanita Mott disappears while hitchhiking to babysit a friend's uh, kids while the friend attends a wedding. Juanita had actually been a lodger at 25 Cromwell at one time. She'd been one of those boarders uh, before going on to live with other families. Like uh, with so many others now, Fred and Rose would pick her up, take her to the cellar, torture her, and kill her. This time, they suspend her body from the ceiling 
and torture her using some new equipment they'd installed just for that purpose. This was their favorite sexual game now, right? They tried everything else. They'd had sex with other people, used sex toys, played with bondage, had threesomes, had orgies, had sex with paying customers, had sex with their own children, had sex with strangers they'd abducted and raped and then let go. And now their sexual thrill, their you know favorite one is to abduct strangers, take them to the cellar that they turn into a rape dungeon, torture them for days before killing them during what I have to imagine is a sexual act, right? There are rumors though the tapes have never been found or at least not publicly reported as being found that they filmed some of these torture and murder sessions that they literally made snuff films to watch and get off to later. For some reason, Juanita is never reported as missing. So her connection with 25 Cromwell is never investigated. Victim number 11. The only thing interesting going on at 25 Cromwell, according to the neighbors uh, at this time is a massive construction project that Fred is undertaking to demolish the garage and build an extension. Part of the reason he's building this extension is to cover up some of the bodies. In the spring of 1976, to make some extra cash for these renovations, Fred travels to Cumbria to work for British Gas. When Fred returns, he and Rose get to work refining their system of finding vulnerable young women. And how fucking evil is this? Right when you think they've hit the bottom. Nope, there's further to go. There was a nearby children's home for delinquent girls named Jordan's Brooks House, Jordan's Brook House, where because of the strict rules, girls often ran away. Usually this would involve pulling a fire alarm. All the girls would flee at once only to be collected penniless and worn out a couple of hours later is how it is described. Fred figures this out. He starts to cruise around the home in his Ford Transit offering lifts to any girls that come his way. Like some kind of fucked up, sadistic human fisherman trolling for girls in a new fishing hole. Well, earlier I said that because of their upbringings, they may have not understood sexual acts as being blatantly morally wrong. I don't think that applies to these murders. They weren't, they weren't raised in murder houses. As warped and twisted as they were, I think they clearly knew that what they're doing now is horrific. Uh, instead of simply taking these runaways back to his house and murdering them, he and Rose start to uh, form friendships, inviting them back for you know snacks, listening to their problems. And this feels even more evil to me than attacking them right away. Why did they do this? Because they knew the girls, if they were friendly to them, would go back to the group home and tell the, the other girls there about the nice people they'd met with a cozy home which of course would lead to more potential torture and murder prospects. One visitor to the home remembers being surprised at how many children were living there. Fred and Rose now had four kids related to them that they were caring for. Anna Marie, 12, Heather, 5, May, 4, Stephen, 3. And now they are also foster parents. Seriously, how maddening must that be to hear to the many great people trying to get registered as foster parents today? I know based on some friends going through the process that it can be really hard. Apparently the bar much lower back in the 70s in Britain. Clearly, they didn't check the fucking cellar when making sure that the, this was a good home for foster kids. Okay, uh, home check almost complete. Let's just have a look around the cellar. Looks like you have some very large metal dildos laying about. Well, you'll be putting those away before the foster children arrive. Excellent. And what about these metal shackles chained to the wall for someone's hands and feet? Will you be shackling the children to the cellar wall? No? Okay, excellent. What about all this duct tape and rope and knives? And Is that an axe? Okay, and that axe and oh, ele that electric saw uh, laying next to that f uh, uh, giant fist dildo and that the enormous, what looks like an anal stretching device. Will you make sure to keep those sexual torture and murder tools away from the children? You will. Okay, excellent. Well, I see no problems then. Okay, uh, the kids will be here tomorrow, so please quickly get to uh, putting all of this away. Uh, after coming up with their new system, Fred and Rose West rape and molest an untold number of teen and preteen foster kids. Uh, sometimes the girls... Uh, uh, you know, came around. Uh, and then there's, you know, the girls from the group home. Uh, who knows how many of those girls they're molesting and raping, possibly murdering. 
sometimes these girls come around uh, long enough to, you know, establish a solid relationship. Fred and Rose make advances. Usually beginning with Rose, who's now 23, coming on to them before bringing Fred into the mix. And if the girls don't come around to flirting, they're often raped. Sometimes these two sex-crazed lunatics get away with raping numerous girls at once, usually introducing bondage, whips, other means of causing pain. Uh, the girls in foster care uh, then feel like they can't trust anyone. After all, they thought the West were good people that were their, you know, they were their friends. So these assaults go unreported. Many of these stories don't come out until after the trial. Meanwhile, as Anna Marie progresses through puberty, the abuse she suffers at the hands of her father and stepmother get worse and worse, or gets worse and worse. She's prevented from having access to tampons or sanitary napkins, just for no other reason other than just to, you know, fucking shame her, torture her. Uh, she's forced to bathe in scalding water. She's once used by Rose and the West children as some kind of painting canvas with Rose painting the words black hole on her butt with an arrow pointing down. What the fuck? Uh, no more explanation given for that, just a peek into the insanity of the West household. Uh, other times, Anna Marie is beaten with a stick, uh, locked in the cellar. She's once stabbed in the arm. Fred also makes a chastity belt with a vibrator in it for Anna Marie. Eventually, Anna Marie begins having trouble at school. Of course she does. She's expelled for acting out. Uh, by the age of 12, she's also, by her parents, forced into prostitution. Rose first made her have sex with one of her customers. Shortly after that, she'll take Anna Marie to nightclubs where they'll drink Malibu and Cokes and pick up men's together. Raising her the West way. Oh, God. What? Who's this? Coming into the Suck Dungeon. Got a visitor. Bok, bok, playboy. Bok, bok. Fred and Rose West. What a couple sexual pests. Bringing Johns into the home with the kids. I think those head injuries really loosen Fred's lid. Molesting your own daughter? What kind of mother? What kind of father? They make your child prostitute like you do and did? Didn't think these two dirty birds take things any farther? Murder, kidnapping, incest, torture, and you pimp out your daughter? Man, I'd love for the West to be taken out for slaughter. Can't wait for these two to get put away for life. Death of the husband, death of the wife. A slow, painful death. That's the punishment for which I'll be praying. But it won't seem like punishment enough. You feel me? You dig? You hear what I'm saying? Oh, all right. Thanks, Chicken Joe. I haven't seen Chicken Joe in a long time. Long time. Old time sub character. Uh, what Chicken Joe just said, it was uh, Chicken Joe speak for even a pimp uh, sexual trafficker finds the sexual lives and crimes of the West to be so despicable, they should definitely be put to death and a painful death. All right. 1976, the horrific sexual debauchery continues. There's a steady stream of young female lodgers at 25 Cromwell. Most are young women who work in local shops and factories. One of them is named Shirley Robinson. She'd been working as a prostitute when she met Rose, and at the age of 18, Shirley moves into 25 Cromwell. She's bisexual. She's open to having sex with both Fred and Rose, becomes a sort of girlfriend. Meanwhile, the abuse of Anna Marie gets even more horrible and perverted. Not sure if Shirley knew about the abuse or not, but looking at the total picture here, I'm going to say she probably did. For people who got away with what they got away with for so long, they didn't seem to work real hard at keeping it a secret. Sometimes when Rose had sex with a client, Rose took the condom the man had been wearing and would give it to Fred, who would then try and use the man's semen to inseminate Anna Marie. Why do this? Because according to uh, one of the investigators who worked on these murder cases, Fred was just, quote, pure evil. Anna Marie, thankfully, would not become pregnant via the humili humiliating abuse. Rose becomes pregnant again, though, via one of her West Indian Johns this time. And Shirley becomes pregnant by Fred. So much pregnancy in this suck. Of course there is. So much unprotected fucking. Uh, during the two pregnancies, Rose becomes uh, more erratic, eccentric. She's wearing maternity dresses without underwear, sitting on the back steps of the house with her legs wide open and her skirt pulled up, putting on a little show for the neighbors. Imagine seeing your neighbor do that, just flashing that rascal puss for the world to see. She also gets more volatile, screams at the children more often. While she's initially excited about being pregnant along with Shirley, Rose soon, become, soon becomes jealous. 
Then Shirley starts telling people that Fred is going to marry her and Rose, not happy. Rose gives birth to a baby girl on December 9th, 1977. The couple names the baby Tara. Despite being happy with their new baby, the atmosphere of the West home is one of considerable tension and impending violence. Rose, more and more openly antagonistic towards Shirley now, whose own baby is due on June 11th, 1978. Then on May 9th, 78, Shirley Robinson and her baby disappear. Fred and Rose's cellar was already full of human remains, so Fred now digs a hole in the back garden. He hacks the corpse into pieces, removes the head. Her baby's skeleton will be found nestled beside her remains years later. Nobody reported her to the police. Fred and Rose told their other lodgers that Shirley had gone to Germany to live with her father. Just like that, Fred and Rose get away with two more murders, victims 12 and 13. In 1978, perhaps just for fun, perhaps to help pay the bills, Rose begins to advertise her sexual services now in magazines. A typical ad read, sexy housewife likes it rough. Like BDSM? Want to take things further? Let's meet up. We can fuck atop a graveyard I've built with my husband. Want to be tortured and killed and added to the bones we've already buried? This rascal puss is ready to rumble! Uh, that wasn't exactly what she, said, what she wrote. Her ads weren't quite that brazen. One ad said, sexy housewife needs it deep and hard from VWE, which means very well endowed. Uh, VWE mail while husband watches. And then their words, not mine. Colored's welcome. Uh, in between killings, they just can't get enough sex. I never get the feeling that money is the primary motivation with Rose's sex work. I think, uh, you know, just, just as truly insatiable as Fred. If he could have gotten women to pay him for sex, I think he would have absolutely done so and constantly. Rose's customers were known to her children as mom and dad's good friends, okay? There was a special doorbell for customers to use, the family, many of the lodgers, and it would know what was going on when that doorbell would ring. Uh, Rose didn't discriminate when it came to paying customers, age, race, weight, overall appearance, uh, whoever. It didn't matter to her. Made things more interesting. One of her regulars had a wooden leg, another had a glass eye. Uh, and while this is going on, still running a foster family. Rose has yet another child of her own on November 17th, 1978, because why not bring another innocent human being into this mess? This girl's named Louise. Meanwhile, Fred's continuing to rape daughter Anna Marie on a regular basis, telling her shit like, I made you, you're my flesh and blood, I'm entitled to touch you. He's just like his father, Walter, and like Rose's father, Bill. 1979, Fred gets Anna Marie pregnant and Rose brings her to a hospital to get an abortion, even though, you know, I thought, I thought he was the guy who could do that. Uh, at the Gloucestershire Royal Hospital on May 24th, 1979, Bill Lett, Rose's dad and perennial father of the year candidate, dies after contracting plural mesothelioma. His lungs are filled up with cancerous tumors and he dies at the age of 60. Good riddance. Glad it was painful. Thank God one of these pieces of shit finally dies in this suck. Uh, did I mention that some sources allege that while Rose was living on Cromwell Street with Fred as a young adult, her father would still swing by from time to time and have sex with her? Yep. That's how fucked up these, these families are. His wife, Daisy, didn't mourn him for long. She would later say, I always felt my husband was a weak character, actually. Huh, weak? Uh, by weak, did you mean incestuous and rapey? Rose scandalized her family by arriving for the burial in tarty clothes and black stiletto heels. Based on what a perv her dad was, I, I bet he approved. On August 5th, 1979, four weeks before her 17th birthday, future victim Allison Chambers packs up her things and flees from Jordan's Brookhouse. Uh, it was the eighth time in nine months that she tried to run away. Allison was an unhappy young girl who coped with her life as a ward of social services by retreating into poetry and painting. She was often bullied, was not well-liked by other children at Jordan's Brookhouse. A few weeks before she left, she started telling her peers about an older man that she was in love with. The man was in love with her too, she said, and gave her gifts, including jewelry. Nobody believed her. 
So Allison packed up and left. From her new living situation, Allison wrote to her mother that she lived with a very homely family. I look after their five children and do some of their housework. They have a child the same age as me who accepts me as a big sister, and we get on great. The family owns flats and I share that I share uh, with the older sister. Within a few days of arriving at 25 Cromwell Street, she had probably already begun a sexual relationship with both Fred and Rose, and then the sex soon became frightening. And then one day before she turned 17, the West gagged her with a purple belt, raped her, tortured her, and killed her. She was dismembered, buried in the garden next to the wall of the recently built extension. Victim number 14. Meanwhile, eldest child, Anna Marie, is now 15 and terrified. She's worried something extra terrible is going to happen to her when she turns 16. Uh, she isn't sure what it's going to be, but she knows she doesn't want to wait and see. She's already endured a lifetime of sadistic abuse. It's time to get the fuck out. So 15-year-old Anna Marie leaves home and goes to live with some friends. Thank God somebody gets out. Uh, June of 1980, Rose gives birth to another baby. Yay, a boy named Barry. Oh, there were now effectively two groups of children on Cromwell Street. The older ones who'd been fathered by Red and the younger ones, some of whom were the children of Rose's clients. The oldest child was Heather, who turned 10 in the autumn of 1980. There was eight-year-old May, there was Stephen, seven, and then the younger children. Fred and Rose needed complete control over their children to make sure their secrets didn't get out. So the children were kept away from adults, banned from playing out in the street, and didn't visit relatives. School friends were not allowed to visit 25 Cromwell, and the children were not allowed to visit their friends' houses. Instead, they had chores. From the age of seven, Rose made them do their own laundry. From the age of 10, they had to feed themselves. Uh, Rose told them they didn't deserve presents. At Christmas, it was uh, just a terrible life all the way around. Now, with Anna Marie gone, Fred's sexual incestuous attentions turned to 10-year-old Heather, the next oldest child, and also to eight-year-old May. Rose gives birth in 1982 to another kid. Sweet. Rosemary Jr., Another child she has with a client. She and Fred only know because the child is not white. Meanwhile, 12-year-old Heather is becoming more nervous, shy, withdrawn in the eyes of her teachers. She'd previously been studious, but now she seems to have given up. She really doesn't like the company of boys or men. She takes up smoking, begins to drink. Uh, she's, living in, she's living in hell. Fred and Rose this time, for some reason, because she didn't like having her dad rape her, I'm guessing, become convinced that Heather is a lesbian. And they are furious about it even though Rose herself identifies as bisexual. What a weird thing for these two maniacs to get mad at. I mean, they really do live in their own reality. A British criminologist in a doc I watched talked about how hard this story is to understand for most people because most of us have somewhat normal brains and have had relatively normal childhoods and we just can't relate on almost any level to these two psychopaths and the way they live their lives. Their childhoods were so fucked up and then their adulthoods more fucked up and then they got low IQs Possible brain damage, likely brain damage with Fred, and what the same criminologist called uh, folly ado or shared madness for two. And you get two people living a very peculiar reality that is hard for anyone else to inhabit. They live by their own rules. They just made up as they went along. Just fucking madness. Two maniacs pushing each other further and further into madness. Uh, Rose gives birth to another baby, another mixed race daughter in July of 1983 named Luciana, her eighth child. Uh, she's now 29 years old, and after the birth, doctors finally fucking sterilize her. Thank God. She would later try to have the operation reversed, and we get pregnant briefly, but thank God have a miscarriage. Around the age of 30, Rose becomes more violent towards the children now. When her eldest, Heather, sneaks into her room, takes some of her porn magazines to school. Oh, you don't take mama's porn. Rose thinks it's Stephen, and uh, she brings him into the bathroom, undresses him, binds his hands with wires before tying him to the toilet and beating the shit out of him. Uh, several of the kids try to run away around this time, but they don't have the resources to last long in the outside world. They come back. When they do come back, they're inevitably beaten. Uh, Heather now wants to find a job that will support her in time for her 16th birthday. 
Um, she's also worried about turning 16. She started studying for eight uh, certificate of secondary education, uh, CSE exams to try and get a job. In 1985, Anna Marie marries her boyfriend, Chris Davis, and the two move into a house on the White City Estate in Gloucester. Thank God she's still out. In the summer of 1986, Heather sits for her uh, CSE exams. In the last week of exams, she breaks her silence about what's happening to her at 25 Cromwell to her friend, Denise Harrison, telling her friend everything, you know, about Fred having sex with her, all this stuff, but her friend does not go to authorities. And uh, sadly, you know, no one comes to her aid. By her 16th birthday in October, she still hasn't found a job. And on May 29th, 1987, she registers for unemployment at the Department of Social Security while continuing to apply for jobs. Uh, Heather is rejected for yet another job in June of 1987, and she starts spending days in bed now, very depressed. And one day, uh, when it's raining and most of the kids are off to, off to school, she gets in an argument with her parents. It turns into a physical fight. Uh, Fred possibly tries to sexually assault his daughter. It spirals out of control. Either Fred or Rose put their hands around Heather's throat and they strangle her. And it seems Rose stomped on her. Her brother, Barry, who turned, uh, who was seven around this time, later claims he saw mom stamp, stamp on Heather's head five times. And she didn't move again, he said. Oh my God. Rose and Fred's firstborn, firstborn child is now dead at their hands. Victim number 15. Fred disposes of the corpse, decapitating his daughters, uh, you know, taking off her head just as he had done with others. He puts her remains into a black trash bag, stashes it in the dustbin under the stairs. When the kids come home from school, he tells them the dustbin is full of old plaster. Uh, he then tells the kids that Heather had left home to work at a summer camp, the, the job she had just been rejected from. He then asks the kids to help him dig a hole in the garden, saying he's thinking of installing a pond. Stephen helps his dad dig this hole and a few days later notices that, it had, that it's uh, filled in. I thought it was supposed to be a, a pond. Stephen writes it off as Fred, having changed his mind about the pond, later realizes that he had just helped bury his own sister. That's not going to fuck you up. Uh, over the following weeks, a couple people ask the West where Heather had gone and Rose gives conflicting accounts. Meanwhile, Fred paves the back garden with several dozen square slaps. After all this work, Fred and Rose celebrate with a barbecue dinner. Mm. Later, the kids would make a sick family joke about how if you misbehaved, you would end up two down and three across. This is in reference to Heather's dead body being under the pavers in the garden at two down and three across. In the summer of 1987, shortly after Heather's murder, Fred decides to convert the cellar into bedrooms. The fuck dungeon days are over. He's 46. And I guess he's just had his fill of, you know, cellar torture. The remodel gives him an excuse to properly seal away the bodies of the five young women who are buried there. Once the renovations are finished, it seems like life starts to get better for the remaining children, the ones they had murdered. Do they maybe regret Killing Heather, is that possible? Did they finally feel like they'd taken things a bit too far? Should be better parents? You know, the kids now have a, a new living quarters, has a bathroom, lounge area, television, snack bar. They start pinning, you know, school drawings to the walls, moving their toys down there. How sweet. Are Fred and Rose becoming decent parents now? Of course not. The purpose for this was to cordon off the adult world upstairs and just force the kids downstairs. The children were now sent down to the cellar almost all the time, given strict instructions never to go upstairs, not even in, if the door is open. The first floor is now transformed into a sex den for Rose and her customers, a garish looking lounge with a fully stocked bar. These people are so ridiculous. We've come across plenty of sex crazed killers before, but maybe never encountered anyone as sex crazed as Fred and Rose West. I mean, maybe the truck stop killer, but maybe even old Incubus wasn't quite this horny. By autumn of 1988, Fred has turned the sick sexual focus he'd previously centered on Anna Marie and Heather to his uh, daughter May now, right? He, she'd already been molesting her, but now she is the center of his attention. She's 16. Uh, he's furious that she often rejects his advances. Uh, during this time, all photographs of Heather are removed from the house. Fred often tells the children that he'd seen Heather on the street somewhere. Uh, maybe he saw her picking up a dude or, you know, some women engaged in some kind of seedy work. 
tries to give the impression that she's still alive, that they're ashamed of her. How dare she run away and do exactly what her mom does here? Four years later now, on March 28th, 1992, something good happens. Walter West dies at 77 years old. Fred West's dad is fucking dead. Sweet. Another architect of all this madness is in the ground. Shame that he lived so long, though. Uh, maybe coincidentally, around the time of his father's death, the secret life of Fred and Rose West starts to unravel. Around this time, a 13-year-old girl tells her best friends at school that she'd been abused by the West and raped by Fred. Outside of their daughter, Heather, it's possible they hadn't killed since 1979 now, 13 years, but they were still abducting and raping. And of course, they may have also just killed women that they just never confessed to, whose remains were never found. Uh, anyways, this girl tells her friend, uh, Fred raped her, and then her friend goes to a neighborhood police officer, a constable in the UK, and an investigation into the West is launched, headed up by Hazel Norma Savage. Interesting person, worth exploring just a bit. Hazel first entered the Criminal Investigation Department, CID, in 1968, when it was rare to find a woman in this department. She became a detective constable, considerable achievement. And by the time she started investigating the West, she had already been part of several major investigations and Hazel remembered the Wests. Around Christmas 1966, she had been sent to Glasgow to collect and bring back to Gloucester a young woman named Rena West, who was due to stand trial for some burglaries. As they drove, Rena confided in Hazel about the abuse she had suffered at the hands of Fred. Rena told Hazel that she was worried about the children and Fred's new girlfriend, Rose. Hazel got to lay eyes on Fred himself a few weeks later when he appeared as a witness at Rena's trial, and Hazel would never forget his face. And, you know, and then Rena disappeared. She found that very suspicious. Uh, so Hazel now makes a routine check to see if Fred and Rose had any criminal history. It turns out they had been jointly convicted of assaulting a young woman in 1973. Fred also, of course, had numerous other convictions, mostly for theft. But on the morning of Thursday, August 6, 1992, police arrive at 25 Cromwell with a warrant to search for evidence of child abuse, including pornography. And they hit the mother load. They recover items including five dildos, a box of dildo heads, rubber underwear, a rice flail, more of a torture device than a sex toy, looks kind of like nunchucks, uh, a whip, various buckles and straps, and 99 pornographic videos, both homemade and commercial. Uh, the homemade part came from Fred and Rose secretly recording her having sex with Johns, not the rumored snuff films. At 9.05 a.m. that morning, Rose is arrested for aiding and abetting the rape of a young girl and for obstructing the police. At 2.15 in the afternoon, Fred would also be arrested and interrogated. Hazel then began to interview friends and family of the West, and the first person she talks to was Anna Marie, now the mother of, tw of two daughters. Anna Marie's horrific story emerges in a series of private interviews with Hazel Savage. She also talks about her half-sister, Charmaine, and her biological mother, Rena. Anna Marie told Hazel, I've been trying to trace her for years. Chris Davis, Anna Marie's husband, suggested Hazel talk to Heather. She would know more than anyone, he said, but she had disappeared just like Rena. Not only does Hazel now have evidence of child abuse, she also knows that three people connected to the family are missing. All five of uh, Fred and Rose's youngest children are now taken into the care of social services. Hail Hazel! Uh, Fred briefly appears in court the following day, August 7th, where he's charged and remanded to Gloucester Prison where he'd been held actually once before back in 1969. On August 11th, 1992, Rose is arrested again after being briefly released on her own reconnaissance uh, for a new charge of indecent assault. At this point, Hazel puts it to her bluntly, where is Heather? Rose demure saying she doesn't know where Heather is. They haven't been in contact. She says she has no idea why no one reported Heather missing. And that's weird. Yeah, You know, you're right, detective. Now that I think about it, I probably should have reported my daughter missing. <laughs> I guess it just slipped my mind. You know, busy week. Speaking with Hazel, Rose changes her story a few times, first saying that Heather had left while she was going out grocery shopping, then saying she'd seen Heather get into a Mini Cooper driven by another woman. 
She even gave this bizarre explanation for why she hadn't bothered to look for Heather. She said, I can remember now why I didn't pursue Heather because things pointed to Heather being a lesbian. This is even more ridiculous than what I said a moment ago. Rose said she didn't want her other children being exposed to Heather's sexuality. <sighs> okay. Uh, she also discussed Charmaine saying at one point that Charmaine's mother had come to pick her up. After all this bullshit, uh, Rose is kept in police custody overnight, granted bail on the condition she does not communicate with her younger children, Anna Marie or Fred. 1.50 a.m., August 13th, 1992, Rose is taken by her son, Stephen, now to Gloucestershire Royal Hospital where she has her stomach pumped. She had tried to kill herself by taking some pills. Unfortunately, she was not successful. Rose is kept at the Gloucester Jail where he uh, is a Rule 43 prisoner according to the system that separates sex offenders from the general prison population who often try to hurt them. Uh, he's described in prison as being timid and frightened. And when his son, Stephen, comes to see him, he says, I've done something really bad. I've done it at night when you were asleep. He doesn't give any further explanation. Maybe he's referring to all the murders, maybe just to Heather's murder. Rose was now living alone on Cromwell Street where money is tight. She takes a cleaning job at the Gloucestershire College of Art and Technology. She writes Fred long, rambling, affectionate letters. She comforts herself by eating chocolate eclairs and watching children's movies like Hook and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So weird to think about her relaxing to those movies and enjoying them. I would have uh, pictured her relaxing to stuff like Natural Born Killers and Silence of the Lambs. September, still awaiting his trial, Fred has moved to Carpenter House Basil Hostel, or I'm sorry, Carpenter House Bale Hostel in Birmingham. In autumn of 1992, one of the West children in care tells a social worker that Fred had threatened them with violence if they ever talked about what went on in the house. Fred said that they would be killed and buried under the patio just like their sister, Heather. For some reason, the social worker does not report this to the police. Eh? March of 1993, Fred is transferred to another uh, hostel in Birmingham, another bail hostel, it's called, uh, in Birmingham, Welford House, then to another unsupervised hostel on Holy Road where there's an 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. Rose is not permitted to see him under the conditions of her bail, but she goes anyway, brings him sandwiches, brings a two-man tent uh, on the train with her to Birmingham, Upon arriving, they pitch the tent and they have intense sexual relations. Of course they do. They live to fuck. Fucking his life. These two demented horn dogs. Fred would later claim that he murdered a woman in Birmingham sometime during this period. No evidence to suggest he did, but also highly unlikely he simply stopped killing after murdering Heather in 1987. On Monday, June 7th, 1993, Fred appears at the Gloucester Crown Court where he's charged with three counts of rape, one count of buggery and cruelty to a child. Rose is charged with encouraging and inciting him to have sex with uh, the 13-year-old girl and with cruelty. Once again, the young girl doesn't testify. God, this keeps happening over and over. Withdrawing moments before she's supposed to speak, the West are declared not guilty and Fred and Rose head home to Cromwell Street after all this. Free as a couple of fucking dirty, incestuous birds. Uh, the case collapses, but it had done something important. It brought the mystery of Heather West's disappearance to light and Hazel Savage not given up. Back on Cromwell Street, Fred and Rose are uh, not reunited with their children. Thank God, they live alone. And they become increasingly paranoid as the days wear on. Hard up for money, Fred gets another job. Uh, he doesn't like it, but he has to take what he can get and he gets another job uh, working as a uh, Mr. Whippy ice cream truck driver again. Get your Neapolitan soft serve. Get your sherbet. Get my finger in your butt. Just kidding, kiddies. That's not my finger, you minxy little nippers. Thump, thump. Sorry, kid, mind the wheels, everyone. Mind the wheels. Uh, he does not, thankfully, get a job as an ice cream truck driver again. Uh, early 1994, one of the West children in custody of social services again says they can't talk about what their parents did to them because Fred will fucking kill them and bury them under the patio like Heather. 
uh, this thankfully, this time, gets passed along to Hazel, who sets about trying to get another search warrant for the West property. On February 23rd, 1994, the warrant is approved, allowing police to really thoroughly search 25 Cromwell for the remains of Heather West. The prospect of searching immediately presents problems. They have no idea where she might be buried under the patio, so digging up the garden, uh, and digging up the garden will be extremely expensive and attract local press. But, you know, they push forward. Fred leaves the house early the next day, February 24th, uh, so it is Rose that opens the door to see a police van with four officers pulling up to 25 Cromwell. They present her with the warrant, and uh, the first day of digging, they sadly do not retrieve anything, but they keep digging. As the officers dig up the garden, Stephen and Rose call Fred's mobile phone over and over again. They know it's down there. Fred later marches down to the police station and declares that he didn't murder his daughter, and this reads as a wee bit suspicious, since he hadn't been accused of this yet. Uh, by the end of February, articles appear in the Gloucester press about human remains being uncovered under the garden at 25 Cromwell Street. On the morning of March 1st, the Daily Mirror prints two short articles about Fred West under the headline, Dad Faces Death Case. So now, of course, he has been arrested, charged with murder. After finding Heather's remains in February between March 5th and 8th, police find six additional bodies of young females at 25 Cromwell. Each victim had been extensively mutilated. Each body bore evidence of having been subjected to extreme sexual abuse prior to the act of murder. The front page of the March 27th issue of the Sunday Mirror reports that the remains already recovered were incomplete. Many bones were missing, especially from feet and hands. Rose is brought before magistrates on April 21st, 1994 and charged with sexual abuse of a child, not charged with murder yet. The following day, she was uh, she is refused bail and transferred to Puckle Church Prison to be held in the maximum security wing. Here, she's questioned more closely about the murders, in particular, the murder of her daughter, Heather, Heather and Linda Gow, and on April 25th, she is now formally charged with murder. Rose is uh, charged with the uh, murder of uh, Linda and Heather. On May 6th, Fred's charged. Fred and Rose are now jointly charged with five counts of murder, with Rose simply replying, I'm innocent, uh, as well as the murders of the victims exhumed from Cromwell Street. Fred confesses to the murders of Rena and Charmaine uh, and to knowing the location of Anne McFall's remains, the 16-year-old pregnant with his child he killed back before he met Rose in 1967. Fred agrees to identify each burial location and the remains are unearthed between April 10th and June 7th. At a further remand appearance held at Gloucester Magistrates Court on December 13th, 1994, Fred and Rose see each other for the final time. On this occasion, Rose briefly glances at Fred, stares icily, then turns away, literally turns her back to him, completely ignores him for the remainder of the hearing, informing two female prison officers to tell Fred she never wishes to speak to him again. Why did she turn away from the man she claimed to love? The speculation is that she initially thought that he could somehow take all the blame for the murders, that she would be able to go free. And when that didn't happen, she felt betrayed uh, you know, by the love of her life and the love of her life was now dead to her. This proves really how fucking to her core she just cares about no one but herself. Fred, as evil as he was, did seem to at least deeply care for her. Uh, he apparently was devastated by her turning away from him. On January 1st, 1995, while awaiting trial now, Fred hangs himself in his prison cell by wrapping an improvised rope he had constructed from a blanket and tags he'd stolen from prison laundry bags. Before dying, he claimed he committed up to 30 murders in total. Authorities feel like he killed at least 13. Good riddance to this piece of shit. Uh, he instructed that his suicide note was to be read to the following music, so I will carry out his wishes here. To Rose West, Steve and May. Well, Rose, it's your birthday on 29 November, 1994. You will be 41 and still beautiful and still lovely, and I love you. We will always be in love. The most wonderful thing in my life was when I met you. Our love is special to us. So, love, keep your promises to me. You know what they are. 
Where we put together forever and ever is up to you. We loved Heather. Both of us. I would love Charmaine to be with Heather and Rena. You'll always be Mrs. West all over the world. That is important to me and to you. I haven't got you a present, but all I have is my life. I will give it to you, my darling. When you are ready, come to me. I will be waiting for you. Obviously, he didn't pick that music. Uh, that note was all him, though. Following year, Fred's younger brother, John, will also hang himself in the garage of his Gloucester home and do not feel sorry for him any more than you would for Fred. At the time of his suicide, he was uh, awaiting a jury verdict in his trial for the alleged multiple rapes of his niece, Anna Marie, Fred's daughter, at Cromwell Street in the 70s. Real dirtbag family. With Fred's blessing, John allegedly raped Anna Marie, his niece, uh, over 300 times during her childhood. The sick hits just keep coming in this demented tale. Uh, Rose's trial begins on October 3rd, 1995. She pleads not guilty to now 10 charges of murder. The murder of Charmaine West uh, having been added to nine murders she committed with Fred that authorities had the most evidence for. In his opening statement, prosecutor Bill Levinson portrays the West as sex-obsessed, sadistic murders. Ding, ding, ding. Nailed it. Terming the bodies discovered at Cromwell Street and Midland, and Midland Road, secrets more terrible than words can express. The victim's last moments on earth were as objects of the depravity of this woman and her husband. Yep. Against the advice of her counsel, Rose herself testifies. Her affect, sometimes morose, sometimes tearful, sometimes upbeat and humorous. She weeps while describing herself as a victim of child abuse and rape who naively married a violent and domineering man, but then jokes about issues such as her always being pregnant and laughs while describing one victim's grandfather glasses. The jury does not find her to be a sympathetic character. On November 22nd, 1995, a jury convicts Rose on 10 counts of murder and she receives multiple, multiple, multiple life sentences. Today, she sits in HM Prison New Hall in West Yorkshire, 67 years old and in good health. She will probably live in prison for many more years. Let's get the fuck out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Fred and Rose West have been sucked. Gotta say, this is an episode that made me feel, via comparison, like one of the best dads of all time. Uh, never fucked my kids, or tried to, or wanted to, or savagely beaten any of them, uh, even one time. Dad of the year! Where's my trophy? Uh, what fucking dirtbags this pair was. Both such creeps. So much of the monsters they became can be traced back to their childhoods, but also many others who have horrific childhoods didn't become the monsters they did. There was other kids in their, you know, childhood homes that didn't become monsters. Why were they so bad? Was it because they met? They hadn't met and formed a sick little world of their own creation? A world where only Fred and Rose's pleasure and happiness mattered? Would their victims be alive today? Difficult to say. Uh, probably, at least uh, many of them. Rose was certainly sexually aggressive from a young age. She molested her brother, would go on to molest her own children and abuse them. With Fred, she became the person that would make the first move towards victims initiating sexual contact or relationships before things took a dark turn. Caroline Owens, Anna Marie West, several other survivors of sexual assaults at the West Hands each testified at Rose's trial that she had been by far the more calculating of the two, the more aggressive, the more controlling of the two. Owens stated that at one stage in her ordeal, Fred said that they had abducted Owens primarily for Rose's gratification. Fred and Rose's son, Stephen, has publicly stated that his mom was by far the most vicious of the two, but had she not met Fred, would she have done what she did on her own? I think she probably would have been a murderer, but not a serial killer. I mean, she did kill Charmaine, you know, before she and Fred killed anyone together. I don't know if she would have done the rest, but who knows? Fred would have been sure, uh, Fred would have for sure been a serial killer without Dozy Rosie. I mean, he was. 
He killed his ex-wife, Rena, on his own. You know, he killed a, 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 another woman who was pregnant, a third woman he killed. I mean, technically, there are, you know, like four people. You know, those are the only murders that will be attributed only to him. Uh, would either of them have killed as many as they killed had they not met each other? I doubt it. I have to think that while they both seem plenty evil on their own, their sum was greater or, I guess, darker than their individual parts. Fred and Rose West, known to have committed over a dozen murders between 1967 and 1987, many of those connected to the case uh, believe there are several other victims whose bodies just never have just never been found. Uh, the West House in Cromwell Street, on Cromwell Street, demolished in October 1996, every piece of debris destroyed to discourage potential souvenir hunters, and nothing else built on the grounds. Uh, painfully, their legacy still lives on, though, in the trauma of their children. In 1999, Anna Marie West attempted suicide by drowning herself. Luckily, she survived. Stephen West, also known to have made unsuccessful suicide attempts, uh, tried to hang himself in 2002. The couple's youngest son, Barry, did take his own life via a drug overdose in uh, October 2020, not that long ago, at the age of 40. So more sadness in this sad story. Let's now head to some takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Fred and Rose West killed three members of their own family. Fred's first wife, Rena, his daughter, Charmaine, and their first daughter, Heather, firstborn daughter. They killed somewhere around nine more young women, at least buried them in the cellar in the patio. Little Stephen even helped take his own sister's grave. Number two, Fred and Rose West had upbringings that truly made them the perfect or worst storm together. So much abuse and incest, almost no sexual boundaries. When these two got together, it was an instant spark of sadistic sexual chemistry. The combination of their codependency, strange sexual behavior, propensity for violence led to a house of so many horrors for their children, over a dozen deaths, and who knows how many additional rapes and molestations. Number three, Fred and Rose were true perverts in every sense of the word. Rose worked as a prostitute while Fred watched his wife have sex with clients. They frequently trolled the streets for, you know, members for threesomes. They raped several young women. They sexually abused their daughters in a variety of ways. Number four, Fred ran over a four-year-old in a fucking ice cream truck. And he led such a terrible life that doesn't even register as one of the top 10 worst things he ever did. Number five, new info. In some cases of romantically linked couples, someone who may not normally commit crimes on their own will be drawn to a person they know is committing crimes and become sexually aroused at the thought of them committing a crime and then commit crimes themselves. This is a condition known as hybristophilia. The common term for this phenomenon is Bonnie and Clyde's Bonnie and Clyde syndrome, aptly named after one of the most famous cases of outlaw couples. We sucked those outlaws back in episode 39. Other real-life examples of this are women who are drawn to men in jail. These women will seek out relationships with these men and in some cases get married to them, commit crimes for them while they're incarcerated. We've talked about that phenomenon several times. I still don't understand it at all, but here's what the experts say. Some speculations have been offered as to the cause of hybristophilia, including low self-esteem, the lack of a father figure, believing they can change a criminal's deviant ways, seeing the inner child of a criminal and wanting to nurture them, share, wanting to share the media spotlight, or the idea that their criminal partner is locked up and so the non-criminal partner doesn't have to worry about unfaithfulness or other day-to-day -day concerns. One of the most infamous examples of hybristophilia is the large number of women attracted to Ted Bundy after his arrest. He drew uh, dozens of women to court while he was on trial and allegedly received hundreds of love letters from women while he was incarcerated. And he even married a woman, Carol Ann Boone, whom he met while working in Washington while he was on trial for murder. People are weird. And Fred and Rose West, uh, you know, terrible example of hybristophilia or not, were about the weirdest. Time suck. Top five takeaways. 
Fred and Rose West have been sucked. Woo! That was a big one, I know. Especially big, even for this show. A lot of info. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all their help in making time sick every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Sophie Fact, Sorceress Evans. She ran point on this week's research. Bit Elixir for continuously refining the Time Suck app. Logan, the Art Warlock. Keith, running badmagicmerch.com. Working on our socials, along with Liz Hernandez, and being the visual artist for all things Bad Magic. Thanks to all those who've joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group, now Cult of the Curious 2, and uh, and or one of the many online subgroups we have out there. Uh, thanks to Liz Hernandez, or all-seeing eyes, running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. Thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad running wild on Discord. You can link to the Time Suck Discord group through the Time Suck app. Uh, next week on Time Suck, just in time for the 4th of July, we tackle one of the riskiest and heroic military operations of U.S. history, Operation Greenup. Many have called Operation Greenup the real-life Inglorious Bastards, a reference to the 2009 Tarantino film in which a group of U.S. Jewish soldiers plot to assassinate high-up Nazi leaders. Uh, there would be no assassinations with this group, just a massive amount of information gathering put into allies' hands that was still really fucking cool. Led in the spring of 1945 by Frederick Meyer and Hans Weinberg, two men who had fled to the U.S. when Nazi Germany was on its rise to power, Operation Greenup went behind enemy lines to discover the truth about the Alpine Redoubt. And just what was the Alpine Redoubt? For many years, Nazi Germany's propaganda machine spun tales to the outside world about a secret stash of weaponry and defense uh, systems where the Nazis could potentially, uh, that they could potentially use to continue World War II for many extra years. In reality, there was no such thing. But the Allies were essentially paralyzed, left wondering what to do and where to mount their attacks before they knew there was no such thing. Enter Operation Greenup. And this amazing real-life, a stranger-than-fiction story will follow some fascinating and fucking incredibly brave meat sacks like Jewish spies, Mayer and Weinberg, who were bent on destroying the regime that had persecuted them and their families. Lieutenant Weber, a German soldier who switched sides and worked for the Allies, and the Nazis who caught Fred Meyer, tortured him, and imprisoned him. What happened next? Tune in next week on Time Suck to find out. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Uh, I figured I'd get some pronunciation updates. <laughs> from last week's uh, Cthulhu Suck. Uh, here's a quick one from the smart sucker, Brandon Ryan. One of the many to point out my problems with the word I didn't expect uh, initially to be a problem. He writes, Suckmaster, you completely and utterly botched the pronunciation of uh, <laughs> uh, mythos for 95% of the episode. Google the word, hit the speaker button. Yes, Brandon. Google says uh, mythos, actually, but then the dictionary, or yeah, mythos, but then dictionary.com usually corrects as mythos. And then the other suckers, uh, or other suckers wrote in saying mythos. Some, uh, yeah, some say either uh, mythos or yeah, mythos. I like these last two after looking at all the variations. Mythos, mythos. So uh, who knew? That was gonna be such a polarizing word. But there are uh, alternate pronunciations that are acceptable. Uh, this next update, also a pronunciation update, but more in depth. The whole episode really threw Air Force sucker George Phillips into a tailspin. He writes, Dear Master Su Sucker, Cthulhu Tentacle Porn Choreographer and Crafter of Love. After listening to your recent podcast on the Cthulhu uh, Mythos, I was at first irritated by your pronunciations of Mythos, uh, Bass, and Cyclopean. Thank Nimrod, you got Cthulhu correct or I'd have diarrhea in my brainstem. I was always under the impression that Mythos was pronounced like Mythos, like a, like a cereal that doesn't exist yet in our universe, but should and should also taste like Cheerios dipped in some kind of Eldridge semen. Nice. Uh, that bass was pronounced without the S sound. Think the old nursery rhyme, bah, 
Bad, bad lizard man. Have you only adrenochrome? Yes, Mr. President. Three babies full. Well done. And that Cyclopean was pronounced uh, Cyclopean. Insert dumb, immature pee-pee joke here. Or pee joke here. Sorry. <laughs> After cringing for a bit, I asked myself, WWDD, what would Dan do? The answer is that the Mushmouth Supreme would research and learn how things are pronounced. Holy flying snakes. I learned that there are alternate ways to pronounce these words. Although bass sounds nothing like bass the instrument, but can pronounce like bass the fish. Uh, all that to say, thanks for teaching this linguist something new and making me crawl up from my depths of pronunciation uh, of my pronunciation comfort zone to expand my own knowledge. I've enjoyed listening to the suck for several years now. After being turned onto it, hey, Lucifina, by one of my NCOs when I was working many a long night shift for the Air Force. You're a constant source of knowledge and laughter for me and occasionally an allergy attack. Not sorry one bit for the long email. If you do read this on air, I want to give a shout out to my beautiful wife, Dulce, and our newborn daughter, uh, Ambelina who will learn the magic of Bojangles and the ways of Nimrod before she can walk. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the great work. May Cthulhu bless you and your family with a millennia of memorable dreams. Sort of sincerely, George Phillips, uh, T-Sergeant, U.S. Air Force. Uh, thank you, George, and thanks for your service. Uh, language, right? It's ever-evolving, so challenging. Regional dialects, like my hillbilly rural Idaho one. All of our mouths are built a little bit differently. Some of our tongues don't want to move like other tongues. Uh, some of us have... Uh, <laughs> Other impediments, there's common usage and involvement. The fact that our language, English, is spoken by so many different nations, each putting their own flair on it makes it a little more confusing. Uh, I appreciate you looking further into all of it yourself. It's, it's, it's more nuanced than many believe. Enjoy that beautiful family of yours and congrats on the new baby. Great name. Uh, now some comedy. Funny sucker, Paul, uh, Paul S., wants some fucking Whipple and even wrote his own ad for me to read. Paul writes... Hey, you! Yeah, you! Get your dick out of your dog and drink Whipple! Made with the only... <laughs> made with only most, the most extreme ingredients like acetone, lithium, freon, and acid. God helps those who help themselves, and with Whipple, you can help yourself to God's mother on the veranda. When you drink Whipple, you'll be able to dropkick anything. Your neighbor, your neighbor's pet, your neighbor's children, fire. When you drink Whipple, you can dropkick fire. Any fire. Bonfire, campfire, kitchen fire, forest fire, firefly. Dropkick fires in your neighbor's face. Your neighbor's pet's face, your neighbor's children's faces. So put down your monster, pussy. Grab a drink that'll put you through second puberty and watch everyone in a 50-foot radius get pregnant with each swig. Great Whipple! Now in flavors like demon lemon, garbage juice, and howitzer. And ad read. Hope it made you laugh. Uh, it did make me laugh, Paul. <laughs> My favorite part was howitzer flavor. Those are way too fun to do. Uh, another very quick pronunciation update now. Got a lot of these. Sci-fi sucker David Thornberry writes, it's Rod Serling. Not Sterling. Thank you. I know, David. I know. I love Rod Sterling, Twilight Zone creator, and I constantly throw a T into his name. I've been doing it for years. I, I feel bad about that one. No disrespect to the great Rod Sterling, master of weird. And now let's end on a nice little shout out. Thoughtful and caring sucker Lauren Streba writes, what's up, suck master and other suck team members? Writing in to request a special shout out, please, if possible. My best friend, who I got into the suck, started a new life adventure a few weeks ago. Her and her boyfriend are now digital nomads driving around the country to see everything while working remotely. That sounds so cool. I just want to say, hey to, you, uh, hey to you, Madeline. I love you. I miss you. And I'm so proud and happy to see you following your dreams and living life how you want to. You're a boss bitch <laughs> and truly an inspiration. Thanks for your time reading this. Even if it doesn't get read on the show, I appreciate all you do keeping us suckers entertained and educated on stuff. At least I uh, know I wouldn't have otherwise ever known about. Cheers. Thank you, Lauren. I love the phrase boss bitch. Uh, be a boss bitch. Live life the way you want to. Travel safe, Madeline and boyfriend. 
Uh, may Nimrod keep you both safe and may Lucifina keep you both entertained, you boss bitches. Uh, that's all for the rest of you boss bitches for this uh, Time Sucker update. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Please do not fuck everyone in your house this week, unless you only live with your adult lover. In that case, keep on sucking. Interpret that how you will. Ice cream! Get your fresh ice cream! Sorry, kiddo, mind the wheels! Ice cream! Get your fresh Neapolitan ice cream sandwiches! Thump, thump. Oh, mind the wheels! Gonna have to get these tires replaced. I keep running over you, squirty little fuckers! Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.